Steve and Kevin discuss life, the universe, and Dragons of Tarkir on episode 42 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 42 of So Many Insane Plays, where Steve and I review Dragons of Tarkir for Vintage. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or themanadrain.com. For announcements this week, Steve, you have some updates to some of your content, yes? If folks haven't seen my uh, Delver Primer, that's been up, and more importantly, it's been updated. Uh, you know, I published it in early January, and then, not entirely unexpectedly, Treasure Cruise was restricted. So the whole thing had to be rewritten, and it was actually expanded by, I don't know, a half dozen or so pages. So if folks are sort of learning about the format, or interested, or curious about how to play Rug Delver, or UR Delver, or they want to know how to play these new Mentor decks that are constructed on the same principles and along the same design lines, you should definitely check out my primer. It's like 60 pages. It's really meaty, really dense, a lot of information, a lot of analysis, a lot of like really neat card analysis. So be sure to check it out. And folks have been still asking about my gush book. I'm still working on it, but I had to pause to finish and re- re-expand and uh, revisit the Delver primer. But also, I think folks will be interested to know that I'm deep into the history of vintage chapter 11, uh, which is chapter 2003, which is probably the most interesting year in the history of, of the format, if you ask people who played at the time and continue to play since. It was just like one of the most by far dynamic years of the entire format's history. And um, I'm, like I said, well over 50% completed with that, but it's uh, it's eaten up a lot of my free time, as has the Vintage Super League, of course. Man, that time period, 2000 to 2003, that's really a turning point, especially Onslaught's Fetchlands where the format really starts to look like it does today. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, and it's it's also kind of interesting. I think Chapin made a point about this before, where the rebranding of the format from Type One to Vintage marks marks really a transition period. But 2003 is so remarkable because you have so many archetypes in the so-called schools of Vintage, which is you know the the thesis, the theme of my my book. And if folks haven't seen the first ten chapters, you can find them. They're published in late 2013. So I'm, I'm glad to get back on this, but just just some of the decks that emerged that year were Growatog, Psychotog Control, mm-hmm. um, Rogue Order Dragon Combo, Rector Tendrils, the the first iteration of the Burning Tendrils deck, including the Minds the the non-existent or never-existent Minds Desire Combo version of that deck. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Control Slaver came out that year, and and of course, Kevin, you and I had a big role in the emergence of Stacks, which also emerged that same year as a reaction to Grow Talk. And that's not even all the decks that came out that year. So that that was like, you know, just it's one of the craziest years by far in the history of the Isn't isn't it fascinating how that metagame is so similar to today's metagame? It really is. It's it's part of the reason I think I wanted to dive into the year. You know, 
I mean, in so many respects, Monastery Mentor just reminds me of Psychotalk. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's uh it's kind of eerie a lot of the parallels. And I mean, but you, looking back, you can kind of see exactly what was happening in terms of the metagame. And there were so many restrictions that year. I mean, Gush was restricted. Um, Herkel's Recall was unrestricted, which was perfect because <laughs> because workshops emerged, you know, as the answer to Grow a Talk. It's the stacks decks with spheres, and Herkel's Recall was right there. And then you also had like the Academy Rector decks, which were using Cabal Therapy, which were popular for a time. I forgot to mention the fact that Scourge came out in 2003. So Tendrils of Agony and all that stuff came out in the middle of that year. But, you know, that's it's like one thing prompts another, prompts another, prompts another. But the restrictions, I mean, Gush was restricted. Uh, Mind's Desire was restricted. Lion's Eye Diamond and Chrome Mox and Burning Wish were restricted. I mean, and then you have Mirrodin coming in at the end of the year. It's like, it's it's basically equivalent to like three or four normal years of the format, all compressed into one year. Yeah, Mirrodin was so huge, too. Well, at any rate, the history of vintage is a fascinating topic. We both love it, so take a look. It's not exactly an announcement, Steve, but before we get into our set review and report card, I'd like to get your thoughts on the latest of the Vintage Super League. We're in the midst of the third trimester of Season 2. What what would you like to analyze? The, the Vintage Super League has been really interesting this season. It's been a lot of fun, and it's obviously been a different experience for me. But, you know, it's kind of funny because at the beginning of the season, there were a lot of complaints heard about the inbred metagame and the lack of diversity. And I think the particular point was the lack of workshops really irked people in, in the format. And then you had, because of the lack of workshops, like I think Blue Belcher in the first trimester went, what was it, five and one? Yeah. But I, I think, you know, those those criticisms were far more muted after we've seen deck selection evolve along more, I think, traditional lines. But I think what's been most interesting about the format in the VSL is the cross-fertilization between between the VSL and I think paper vintage. I mean, you know, I've seen in paper vintage tournaments a lot of these show and tell oath decks, which are not it's not a new concept, but I think LSV and I forget who else played it. Was it someone else played it? Was Efro also played that deck deck in the in the second trimester? Uh, it was Kai. I'm sorry, it was Kai, and they did very yeah. well collectively. I think they were X and one. But you know, I mean, hey, I, I probably should have beat LSV if I'd played my hands correctly. But <laughs> um, you know, what's what's interesting is that that deck has been showing up, you know, in tournaments and doing not not poorly at all, and doing pretty well here or there. It's interesting to see how the deck selection of the VSL has has had a real-world impact. I personally can attest to seeing Mono Blue Belcher in multiple in-person events in Michigan and in the Great Lakes area, and I think that is heavily influenced by the VSL. And I think there's other decks that, and Merfolk as well, I think there's other decks that sort of aren't showing up that had been a thing in, in years past because they're less popular in the VSL. I think that we've seen a, a drop in Oath, despite the fact that it's still quite good and represented well in the Northeast. But here in the Great Lakes region, we've seen a drop in Oath. And I think that there's been a, a, cons, um, a condensing of the workshop archetype around Martello, basically. Yeah. And I think a lot of these factors and people's sideboards and how they're constructed and their preparations for Delver in particular. Yeah. I, I just can echo everything you said, that there's a lot of ripples in real-life magic. Yeah, and I, I also think that even more so than the first season, I think that people are sort of getting a grasp of the format and more curious about it, more interested, more engaged. I think it's influencing tournament turnout in, in the real world. I think it's definitely increasing turnout, which is another really nice thing. But 
um, you know, I, you have to give a lot of credit. You have to give a lot of credit to Randy Bueller and Chris Pakula for the work they did on the Blue Belcher. I, I, I know other people had a role in it, but I mean, that's a that's a very interesting and powerful deck. <laughs> and, yeah. And you know, there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of thought and effort put into some of the design, and it's fun to see fun to see the design. I have to admit, though. Um, I think there's two actually two interrelated points. One is that it's easy, to, perhaps too easy, perhaps facile to draw conclusions about a deck from the VSL. I mean, it can't be overstated or overemphasized enough that these are really, really good players, and <laughs> doing you know poorly with one deck does, is not a permanent statement about an archetype's viability. You know. <laughs> Um, it's just, you know, it's like playing in the finals of a vintage tournament every week. You know, you're playing one of the best players in the tournament. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that like, for just one example of many, my zero and three performance with control mentor in the second trimester is in any way a representation of that deck's power. And, and this actually relates to the second point. I think even more than the first season, I have learned a lot about, I mean, I've just been able to dig in and learn and uh, and analyze so much more than I have in the past. Some of my vintage play. I mean, I'm. I think I probably am known for my granular analytic approach to to vintage play and play by play analysis. But I I have watched my match this season with LSV probably close to a dozen times, and I still don't feel like I've completely unraveled it or uh, grasped it. I mean, there are definitely discrete plays that you could point to and say this is a mistake or this was a mistake or and here's why and but. There's a, a textural sort of fabric or cloth to the, to the sequencing that bears scrutiny that you, you lose sight of if you're just looking at individual plays. And, mm-hmm. and LSV's match against me is just such a master, it's a masterwork, a master class of patience, picking your spots, um, playing me as well as my deck. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, I, I feel like it's like a, a, a mine that I just continued to dig dig into, and I, I don't even know where the bottom is. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. I really have continued to 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 learn watching it. I've watched it, like I said, a lot of times now. And not just the video. What I do is I go into the into the program and I watch my play by play, and it's really an amazing match. So if you haven't watched my match against LSV, I, I think I suspect that my match my regular season match against LSV last season was among the most watched videos in the entire league last year. Because mm-hmm. I was undefeated, and then I still was in first place, but I had a gigantic lead, and I lost because of the like, one critical play mistake. But, but this time, you know, I'm, I was playing with a deck that I wasn't familiar familiar with because I switched from Delver to Mentor, and Mentor's a brand new archetype. And and, obvi- and obviously, it just it just shows you how skilled LSV is. I don't think it's hard to imagine almost any other player I would ever play that would play that game quite like LSV. I mean, it's it's yeah. really just crazy. <laughs> I mean, you've analyzed it. What's your opinion? I guess I can't really add to anything to what you've said. It was masterful. I think he was playing you and as addition to your, your deck and the, the, the game state, as you said. He has a way of crafting interactions that has come up more than once against you. I mean, in multiple matches against you, he has a way of crafting interactions that that take what looks like an un, a potentially unwinnable or at least dominant situation from your perspective yeah. and finds the exact pressure point yeah. in 
and, and exploits it. I mean, the, yeah, the, I agree with everything you said. It's great. What's, what the pressure point is just so not obvious. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, anyway, um, in, in, you know, any of those, I could have won any single one of those matches that I lost, any of the four matches I lost. I mean, against Tom Martell, I think I made, potentially, obviously at the end, if I gushed into any spell, I would have won, you know, and I definitely made a, I walked into Flusterstorm in game one against him. Now, I don't want to deconstruct my matches here, but the, the point is that these are, these are matches that are always going to be close because you're playing some of the greatest players in the world. And I, I don't think I get, a, you know, it's, it's truly an honor to be in the league, but I don't think I get enough opportunities to say how, how great I think these players are. I don't want. I don't want to just single out LSV. I mean, Bob Marr is a is one of the greatest Magic players of all time. It's an honor to be in the league with him. Chris Pakula is not only one of the greatest Magic players of all time, but he's also one of the all time great great you know people in in Magic of all time. He's a historic. He's a historically important icon in the in the in the game. And Randy Buehler, I mean, goes so far beyond not only just being a great player. I mean, his his role in the development of Magic is. I don't think it's one of those things. I don't think you can over over emphasize or appreciate enough in terms of the leadership he played in re- redirecting magic after Urza's block being brought in leading wizards r&d i mean you know the success they had with invasion sort of have set the template for set design going forward i mean and then his tireless passion and interest and enthusiasm and and not just tireless but his con- contagious and infectious so i mean just everyone in the league you could just say you know i could just compliment to the end of the earth but it's 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 worth just saying it and this is as good a place as any is, is making that point well said if any of our listeners are not currently enjoying the vintage super league you should start right now if you've got if you feel like you're missing too much starting right now you don't need to you can go back and look at the archives of all the matches it's all out there on the vintage super league site and on youtube so if you need to get caught up then do it because it's having a big impact on the format and on the format's community Well, Steve, it wouldn't be a set review if we didn't get ourselves a report card from our prior set review. In this case, it's Fate Reforged, and it won't take long because we only predicted play. Between the two of us, in total, we only predicted play from two cards, and we were right. <laughs> However, I, I have to toss in some asterisks with this episode, so let me just run it down the simple parts. We reviewed Light Form, Cloud Form, Soul Summons, the Manifest cards all together, and after some some enjoyable discussion, we've all agreed that there would probably be no appearances, and we were right there. Same for Soulfire Grandmaster and Temporal Trespass. The two, oh, sorry, the three that I want to focus on. First is Reality Shift. Now, Reality Shift is an interesting case because we analyzed it, we talked at length about its possibilities, and we both predicted zero, and there were officially, officially using Morphling.D's results, zero results. But I can tell you that a friend of mine, Aaron Katz, here in Michigan, did make top eight in uh, Warren, Michigan, with Merfolk, with some reality shifts in his sideboard. And I mentioned that because he spoke to me after, or actually going into the top eight, and he said, did you predict any appearances? I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, well, there's going to be one. But he said that with a a wink and a smile, because he also said it, it hasn't been very good. I think he wished it had been dismember. So it's an interesting corner case there for our measurement method, which I'd like to go on with when we talk about Monastery Mentor. So there's an upcoming asterisk here as well. You predicted 24, I predicted 20, and the actual was 7. Incredible. But that 7 comes with a pretty healthy asterisk, because unlike 
prior results and set reviews and report cards, we are missing what I consider to be several tournaments from the Morphling.D results this time. Because since our set review, I mean, I had already won an event with Monastery Mentor, a preview kind of event here in Michigan, which I mentioned last time. Since that set review, I've taken first or second place in three other events, <laughs> Yeah. none of which are in Morphling.D. And you have won an event with Monastery Mentor, which is also not yet in Morphling.D. And I've heard of a couple of others. None of the Team Serious Opens for the last three months, basically, their results are not in Morphling.D for one reason or another. Well, what we'll have to do at some point is once they're all updated, we'll have to re-update the scorecard. Yeah, and so we don't normally go into this level of detail, but I just wanted to point out to our audience that my predicting 20 and the result thought, being 7 sounds like a bigger I difference than it really is. 16 I said 22. Is that what happened? Or is my memory... Or did we, did, did we initially predict those and I said, I, I'll go, then you decide to go to 20 <laughs> I said 24. Yes, that's exactly right. We initially predicted a few slightly lower numbers, but you were getting me so excited that I, uh, <laughs> I, I bumped it up by 4 or 5 when you did as well. Uh, so we, we were quite close on Monastery Mentor. Uh, details notwithstanding, we basically called the the excitement or the level of participation that this card was going to have in vintage and it's showing up multiple times in the vintage super league and it in my opinion it it shows no signs of going anywhere How, what portion of the metagame it makes up uh, going forward we'll just have to wait and see the last card in our report card here is tassiger and not really an a, asterisk but this result i think bears discussion you predicted zero, I predicted one, the actual was one. And Tassiger has, in, to my estimation, become basically a staple of a fringe deck that is Bomberman. From what I can tell, Bomberman has a small but dedicated following of players that really like it and have had great success with it, but it doesn't have a lot of those people behind it. And it's my understanding that Tassiger has been pretty much established as a given in decks like that. I don't mean to speak for absolutely everyone, but all the talk I've heard about Bomberman lately is that it had plays one or two Tassigers as a better and more reliable finisher. Not reliable, but um, more synergistic and otherwise useful finisher than the typical spell bombs. So even though the numbers are not high, I expect that we're going to see Tassiger as long as Bomberman is a playable uh, archetype for the for the time being so overall low results for fate reforged but we called the two biggies pretty accurately which brings us of course to dragons of tarkir to start with steve we should touch on the new mechanics for this set and there are as far as i can tell only three megamorph exploit and formidable all of which, okay, two of which are variants of existing existing mechanics, but the Megamorph keyword is the, the grown-up version of regular morph, whereby you morph a creature, you pay the Megamorph cost, it gets turned face up, and because it's Megamorph, you get an, an additional plus one, plus one counter on your creature when it's turned face up. Huh. Otherwise, it is functionally identical to morph. It's just an interesting variant and pretty much entirely for the limited environment, maybe a tiny splash in standard. Exploit is an interesting one. It's a triggered ability when creatures enter play. You have the option. It's optional sacrifice a creature. That's what exploit means. And if you do, you get an additional beneficial effect. So an example would be the new version of Sidisi, who is a just a mono-black legendary creature, as opposed to the bug version from Cons of Tarkir. 
The new Sidisi has says exploit when this creature enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice a creature. When Sidisi Undead Vizier exploits a creature, you may search your library for a card and put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. So that's the kind that's the that's probably the best example of exploit in terms of power, but that's the kind of example of how it works. Generally will not apply to vintage. Unless there was a ridiculously cheap and amazing exploit effect, which there is not. <laughs> it's pretty easy to build a deck that can get cheap creatures into play in Vintage. You have you have at your disposal all of the zero-cost creatures that have ever been made. And if there was a artifact creature that had a reasonable exploit cost, you might see it in the Affinity-style artifact aggro decks, but there is no such card. The last example is Formidable. Formidable is a red-green or a Tarka effect. I should say keyword that keys off of you having eight power worth of creatures among creatures you control. So it's an upgrade kind of from Ferocious, just like Megamorph is kind of an upgrade from Morph. And it functions just like Ferocious does. If you've got the eight power, then you get creatures have additional effects or abilities. So Dragons of Tarkir does not bring with it any kind of really breakthrough mechanics. There are several reused ones like Rebound and Morph. And uh, otherwise, the cards tend to focus on the dragons is, <laughs> across the board. What is your holistic impression of the set? And, and what, what are the main themes of the set, would you say? Well, the title is not kidding around. Dragons are the primary theme of the set. There are, I think, four cycles of dragons in this set. Jeez. So, I mean, not just four dragons, four cycles. There's one, there's one at Mythic, two at Rare, and one at Uncommon, I think. I, I, might, I might have two at Uncommon. I might have that wrong. But the point is there's lots of dragons, and there's lots of dragon enablers. So red cards that reduce the cost of dragons. There's also dragon fodder reprint. And the dragons themselves represent the replacements of the cons, because this is we're talking about an alternate timeline. So there are plenty of other cards surrounding these new dragon leaders, notably the commands. So for each of the mythic dragons or the elder dragons, there's a command that is a four modal spell of uh, of their two colors. Hmm. Those, so those are the, those are the the charms that have four ability, four potential options, and you choose two. It, uh, I would say it's a cross between charms and commands as we've known them in the past, because the original command cycle had four modes, but were but were single color. These are four modes but dual color. Yep. And then it's just uh, modifications of the mechanical aspects of the cons or the former would be didn't actually happen because of the timeline cons, such that uh, Jeskai people, for example, don't have prowess anymore, but some of them still have triggers from uh, playing non-creature spells. They just don't call it prowess. <laughs> Interesting things like that. But also, this being the third set in a block, it brings in hosers for specific things that are mostly affecting standard. So there's the red card roast, which does five damage to a non-flying creature, which is specifically named Siege Rhino. <laughs> and there's a couple of other just targeted hosers to clean up some things that are dominating in standard, that kind of thing. Typical for a, a third set in a block. And also they just shared, they saved some of the weirder, strangely powerful cards from the block. We'll review a couple of those here. Just it's typical that they push off interesting or potentially unbalancing things in the third set so that they're the lowest risk for standard. Otherwise, it's heavy focus on multicolor, but only two colors as opposed to three colors and cons. And a heavy focus on dragons, as I said. And so there's an interesting tension amongst the development as a whole because you want you being R&D. You want people to be able to play with dragons, at least in limited and in standard you do. So there's a handful of enablers, like the cost reduction that I mentioned before. 
and the commands kind of bridge the gap between the early game and the mid game so that maybe you can survive to cast your dragon general or whoever you're talking about. But also, the set happens to have a lot of really hyper-aggressive creatures. Multiple one-mana two-ones and lots of grizzly bear variants with powerful effects, at least one of which we'll talk about here, as well as some powerful hosers. There's a cycle of of two-mana hosers that hit their uh, enemy colors. So there's a green one that hits blue and black, as you can imagine. And they're really powerful. So powerful that we're going to actually talk about one here in the context of Vintage. Cool. First up... For our review, we have Myth Realized. This one's been getting some press on the Mandarin and on Twitter because of how evocative I think it is of Monastery Mentor, ironically. But it's an enchantment for one mana. Sorry, I was going to say one white, but that's the wrong language. It's an enchantment for white. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, put a lore counter on Myth Realized. Two white colon, put a lore counter on Myth Realized. White colon, until end of turn, Myth Realized becomes a monk avatar creature in addition to its other types and gains this creature's power and toughness are equal to the number of lore counters on it. So, one mana enchantment. It has kind of prowess for counters, so whenever you play a non-creature spell, it gets counters on it. You can pay three mana to add counter to it, and then you play one, and it's kind of like a Mishra's Factory in that it becomes a creature with power and toughness equal to how many spells you've played so far. So on the surface, I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of the non-creature spell equating to increased power in play of sorts between this and Monastery Mentor. And the one mana cost has, I think, I think it's kind of a trigger for people to evaluate cards in Vintage. They say, this says one mana, then it's playable, basically, because I can put this down early, fight my fights and play my mocks in just like you do with Monastery Mentor. But it's so much easier to cast than Mentor that I think people are excited by the notion that they could just play this out, get it up to some huge size by turn two or three or four, and proceed to kill their opponent while retaining control. I think there are definitely issues with that plan. Which are? But primarily because the games uh, games do not always... Uh, they're not always won and lost based on what's in your opening hand. Yeah. And this card is not a good draw on turn three or later, as whereas Monastery Mentor still can yeah. be. Uh, I mean, it seems like that goes without saying, but I think it's I think it's bigger a bigger deal than you might at first think. Also, <laughs> the simple fact that this costs one mana, while it makes it affordable, is going to open you up to angles of attack that a, a two or three mana creature might not. One of which is Mental Misstep, the other of which is Chalice of the Void, and yet another is simply the fact that in the kind of deck you would construct this out, out out of, to cast this on turn one means fetching a Tundra, which, despite the fact that this card is quite cheap and that usually makes cards good against workshops, yep. I think this card is actually actively worse against shops than a Monastery Mentor is. Or a Delver, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, and yeah, the fact that you need to continually pump mana into it to make it have its primary function is also a weakness against workshops. Even though it's only one mana and something like Mentor is three mana, I recognize that. But the simple fact is, is you can kill someone with a Mentor after your Tundra has been wastelanded. Mm-hmm. So I think there are many, there are a couple of tactical reasons why this card is con- worth considering, possibly even testing. I think there are several tactical reasons why it won't work out. I uh, I think this card is really fascinating. and. <laughs> I, I it's definitely thought provoking. I think it's actually very powerful. Um, now I'm kind of surprised that you wanted to start with this card because this may be the biggest card in the set. Um, <laughs> but you know, the uh, I guess the first place to begin the point of analysis is why, in God's name, is Wizards continuing to print these these kinds of cards? 
I mean, they just they just you know are giving you more and more Quirion Dryad type cards than we've ever had before. You know, and and these creatures that grow. I mean, whether it's a Delver that grows from from one to three, or a Pyromancer or a Mentor or whatever these you know the grow horizontal or vertical. These cards have just are inherently powerful. Mm-hmm. And and this one, I think you're 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 right. I think everything you pointed out is, is I would say I would characterize your analysis as the summation of its drawbacks. Um, but this card has so many interesting advantages. It's hard to know where to begin. I guess the the place I would like to start is the simple fact that it's an enchantment, not a creature, and that gives it this inherently powerful resilience that is often lacking from creatures the fact that first of all of all the permanent types enchantments and planeswalkers and maybe lands are just the hardest to remove to deal with and enchantments i mean there's not a lot of dedicated enchantment removal out there you've got you know trigon predator which is seeing less and less play nature's claim and Mm -hmm. you know it's just there's just not a lot out there there's the uh wear tear but this card is something that you could put into play and it may not be it concerns me that it's a bit lack of ability to play defense in early game but uh it can sit there and be essentially unmolested for a very long time and and then it can take over the game it's the kind of card that um you could see in a lot of different modes it could be like in a landstill deck or it could appear in a tempo type deck um and and also yes you turn to a creature but that doesn't stay a creature until past the end of the turn so you know any subsequently drawn plow or whatever is not gonna not gonna deal with this card um i uh i'm very uh enthused about this card um you know, beyond just the fact that it's enchantment and therefore less vulnerable, I think you're right to point out that a later drawn version of this is not, is, it's like drawing a Turquarian Dryad on turn eight. But but the fact, but this has a built-in contingency, contingency plan for that. The mm-hmm. designers of this, this card realized that it had that weakness. And so you can turn your excessive mana directly into, into power here. Um, so I, I'm... I am um, less skeptical hmm. of its uh, decreased utility in the mid or late game. I am. Um, I think the thing that concerns me the most is not just the fact that you know if you could. The one way of attacking this card is actually wastelanding tundra. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I think that what concerns me perhaps a little bit more is how how heavy the man investment is going to be. Because if you think about it, to make it a blocker, you have to pay a man on your opponent's turn, and then to make it an attacker, you have to pay a man on your turn. That's two mana per turn um, to make this thing both function on offense and defense. That to me is the number one concern I have about this card. But in terms of sheer power, this is this is the best grow grow creature we've arguably just are ever seen. A one mana grow creature that grows with every single spell you play except for creatures. That's that's unheard of. That's a fair point. And I, you're right. The the card does break a couple of barriers, not so much break them as just continue to knock them down, as you said, as this block has. Yeah. I think it, it's worth noting that it, it matches up quite well against some popular vintage strategies and quite poorly against some others. For example, it is much better against Oath. It's a creature you can yes. attack your opponent with that will never trigger Oath of Druids. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's another another big point. Yeah. Um, it also matches up quite it, well against Jace the Mind Sculptor. You can also play it in an Oath deck. <laughs> Which is not, that's, not trivial. That's worth, yeah, that's not trivial. I would point out, though, the converse. This card matches up very poorly against Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor. Right. So but it actually, if those decks are in your metagame, you're almost never going to deal damage with this thing. Matches up maybe poorly, but it actually has a lot of synergy with Monastery. A lot. That's that's potentially true, yes. It's an enchantment, so it pumps it. This card could be like a Delver-type card for Eternal Formats. It could be, but you've talked at length, and it's it's worth reiterating, the role of Delver in certain matchups 
can't be fulfilled by this card. This card, for example, you, you can't just play it on turn one yeah. and then hold off a lodestone golem with it. Yeah. You can't you can't just play it on turn one and then use all your it, mana every turn to do other things. And, and while being a Crete an enchantment may be an advantage in general, it's a disadvantage when it comes to Thorn of Amethyst. Um, yeah. I uh, yeah I mean. And also we've gotten we've gotten away from the vertical growth as you and I have covered on a number of occasions, true. specifically Pyromancer and Mentor. This card does not. I mean. It's, it's not very good against simple things like tangle wire. Yeah, and it um it doesn't yeah it doesn't even have flying like Delver has. So at least it has that kind of evasion. But this card is going to be bigger than Delver. And like a turn one of this turn one this card is going to be the largest creature on the table a lot of the time. It's going to be lar- larger than Mentor most of the time. Um, this is a real monster. <laughs> it, larger than Mentor. Well, is tr- is strictly speaking true, but functionally not helpful, right? Because if you're yeah. if you're going mono a mono with a mentor, you're gonna maybe get in damage first because this came down on turn one and you hit them for two to four on turn two. Yeah. But assuming both creatures are or cards are in play at the same time, the mentor wins that confrontation all the time. Yeah. Every time. Um. The only way the mentor doesn't win is if you remove the mentor or if you have an incredible card advantage engine that means you're winning the game through it by another axis already. I can't help but wonder again if, if this can be paired with Mentor. It seems <laughs> like White has really turned a corner in, in Magic and perhaps Vintage. Well, I don't know about the whole color turning the corner because as far as I'm concerned, the only thing that has happened is that Monastery Mentor was printed. I think the... <laughs> I, but we talked about these these effects before that one, one entry can transform a system and this intervention of, of Mentor makes all these other white cards so much better, you know, um, just because of its mirror presence being in the same color. Um, I mean, it, you know, this is the kind of card that you, a control player can play on turn one, sit back, you know, achieve the control role, and then just win with this card. And gr- granted, like, be playing on turn one means you're probably running four, but, I mean, doesn't this card just strike you as having potential in, like, a landfill-type deck? Absolutely, it does. I mean, it does have a lot of synergy with Landstill's tactical and strategic goals. So that might be that and mentor style decks are seem like the logical homes for me. But at the same time, can, most Landstill decks, at least recently, aren't aren't playing any creatures designed for attacking or blocking. They're maximizing their interactivity with their spells and trying to kill you with their lands or the or the ancillary effects of something like Jace the Mind Sculptor. So I can't think of a Landstill player out there who's going to be really excited about just putting a beatdown creature in their deck. Even if it's possibly the best possible configuration, it's still just there for attacking and blocking, and therefore not popular in that archetype. I'm not saying things can't change. Archetypes change. Landstill's gone through a lot of interesting iterations lately, but I think this is a tactical departure from where that deck has been recently. Okay, fair enough. It does, I mean, it does slot directly into Mentor-style decks. It's tactically exactly what that deck is trying to do, but I also think that it opens you up to certain weaknesses that are probably going to steer you away from it being in your final 75 card list. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. I I definitely promote people testing. Do you think this card is going to see play then in vintage? I genuinely do not. Wow. I think think people are going to test it and they're going to come to the conclusion that it's not right. And I don't. I, I. I'm not saying it's. I'm not guaranteeing a zero per se. But I just don't think this is. This is meant for the format at this time. Fair enough. It's really hard to evaluate um, without having tested it more. But I just think. Uh, I think it has a tremendous potential. I can confirm that I've heard a number of people excited about it. Yeah. Saying, problem, hey, this card's really interesting. I think this is the problem is stacking up the. You no, know, 
when you have cards like like Delver that or whatever, you don't have to disaggregate these elements. Like you don't have to value what's the value of Delver as a defensive card, you know, mm-hmm. versus being an offensive card. And you don't have to also pay mana. So you know, to to get it to become a creature. So it's it's really difficult for me to you know. I think ultimately the question is going to be how quickly this thing realistically grows and what's mm-hmm. its average power and toughness going to be. Um, those are all going to be critical elements that will that, that could make this card turn on. It could be one of those things where it, it just the wrong set of variables. It sees no play and just the hair to the side of it, it sees a ton of play. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's that's uh, I think that's accurate. I uh, I don't know. I'm going to go non-zero on this card. Well, I think I'm going to go zero, so I'll just leave it up to you as to what non-zero number you want to go with. You said Monastery Mentor only had seven, but that's a gross undercount. We know it is grossly underrepresented, yeah. I'm going to say, uh, say three. Okay. And I could be Very interesting. Could be way, way low, but that's where I'll go. Next up, Stratus Dancer for one blue creature gin monk flying Megamorph for one blue. And when Stratus Dancer is turned face up, counter target instant or sorcery spell. And it's 2 1. We've not had many morph creatures see play in vintage, but the one and probably best example is very much like this card, and that would be Void Mage Prodigy. Played a couple years back in a wizard's list to some moderate success. Its primary use was, of course, to counter spells. However, you don't have to morph a Void Mage Prodigy for it to counter spells, but it did happen occasionally. This card is very aggressively costed in terms of its non-morphed size. I mean, for by standards, standards. <laughs> so two mana for two one flyers, that's pretty aggressive. And it pairs up well with something like a, a Delver of Secrets, for example. If they have Delver and you have this, they're going to trade. Steve, what do you think about the notion of just being able to counter spells with a morph creature? I think that, broadly speaking, it's applicable, but... The morph cost, I mean, the, you have to invest five mana to counter a spell with this. I, mean, I, I just think that's still just above a, a basic threshold in Vintage. So that's an interesting question, Kevin. I mean, you know, I think the only point of comparison we have for that is, what is it, Stormscape Apprentice or something? Not that, but there's a card that costs four to unmorph and it counters a spell. But this, the Void Mage Apprentice. Void yeah. Mage Apprentice. This thing does the same thing for, for just uh, half as much mana. Um, but that that seems about par for the course in terms of the evolution of the game. Um, you know, Void Mage Prodigy did see a little bit of Type One vintage play, mm-hmm. um, but it, that also has the advantage that you don't have to play it for its morph cost in order to get the advantage. You can just hard cast it and then you know. Yeah, which it normally was. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out too that the threshold for vintage playability in terms of a morph, to me would be if you can unmorph it for free. And that card has existed in Fathom Seer for years. And that card is effectively Gush. Right. Which is an amazing vintage card. And yet, free unmorph for Gush still has never seen play. Um, so I think that, you know, first of all, it's a 2-1 for 2, which is nice. And he flies, so that's nice. But you're, in order to get the advantage, you really have to morph it. And I just think that's too prohibitive. So five minute to counter a spell. It's, it, it, granted, you can't counter the morph effect unless you have like a stifle. You, you can't even stifle it, can you? No, you cannot stifle the, the morph activation. Yeah, but, I don't think, but you can stifle the trigger. I so. don't think the premium <laughs> is, is enough. I mean, the premium to make something counterable is not three more mana. So, yeah. Yeah. I just don't think this is good enough. Also, this is not nearly as good as Delver of Secrets is at playing some of the key roles that Delver is. Normally, no, notably, coming down on turn one and having three power to to hold off Lodestone Golem. Right. Or just finish a game that much quicker. I mean, a three power creature is a functionally seven turn clock. This is functionally nine or ten turn clock. That kind of thing matters. Definitely. Yeah. 
Okay, so zeros across the board? Yep. Yep. Next up, Rending Volley. For red, instant. Rending Volley can't be countered by spells or abilities. Rending Volley deals four damage to target white or blue creature. So, if you absolutely have to get rid of a Monastery Mentor, or one of a number of other things, this one can't be countered. It does four damage, so even if they play, they'd have to play three spells in response, which is asking a lot. Definitely. So... If you want to kill Monastery Mentors, this card seems like it'll do it, don't you think? Uh, it, it probably will, but there's no guarantee of that. You can still <laughs> throw a, a Gush and a Misstep out there and, and one other spell, and then, you know, Mentor has survived. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it doesn't survive, it might, you might still die to those two monks. <laughs> this, card, this card just kind of offends me at a base level because it, it, it's not fair what it does to Sarah Angel back in the day. You'd literally have to use the Disrupting Scepter to strip these out of your opponent's hand or this could kill your, you know, before you can play your Sarah and they could still top deck this. So mm-hmm. It violates what I believe, you know, it violates the, you know, the, the total lock of the deck. So I hate this kind of card, but... <laughs> Well, Aside from my if, gross prejudice against this card, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say I I, um, I don't think that this is going to see a lot of play in Vintage. It, it probably will pick off a Mentor, and it can do a lot of stuff, but again, the, the problem is the, is the horizontal growth. Yeah, absolutely. I think this card this card is superior than to Lightning Bolt at killing Monastery Mentor, but it is not superior to Lightning Bolt at basically anything else that Lightning Bolt does in the format. Right. This card doesn't kill Lodestone, it doesn't kill Young Pyromancer, it doesn't kill Jace, it doesn't kill your opponent. And so, yeah, I, I, I think there is a chance that someone will have one of these in a sideboard if they're in a Mentor-heavy metagame. Right. But I'm not convinced that Mentor-heavy metagame is a thing that exists. And one of the things that's so important about Vintage is versatility. This is only, you can only play it against white or blue, blue creatures. What? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a color-based hoser. I mean, yeah. let's, let's think about what else this could kill. Snapcaster, Trinket Mage... Um, most of the, I mean, most all the creatures in Bomberman. Yeah. Of which there are a few others that come in and out. Uh, Mages of the Future. Trigon Predator. Trigon's good. Uh, the Angel, Restoration Angel, Vendillion Click. So of all those creatures we just listed, the only other one that this gets bonus points for over Lightning Bolt is Restoration Angel. Yeah. Which is barely played in today's metagame. Yeah, this the fundamental problem is this card's competing with Lightning, which can kill yes. a Lodestone Golem, which is my point. There's no yes, way to exactly. see play over a Lightning Bolt. And if you just want to kill Monastery Mentor, there are actually other better cards. And Lightning Bolt can also kill a Planeswalker. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so no for Rending Volley. Let's talk about another role player, <clears throat> or potential role player. Dramoka's Command. This is one of those dragon commands that I described earlier. For green-white, instant. Choose two of the four modes. Prevent all damage, target instant or sorcery spell with deal this turn. Speaking of lightning bolt. Target player sacrifices an enchantment. Put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. Target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. I think three out of the four modes here have actual relevant, you know, day in and day out work to be done in Vintage. Okay. The trick is is may, maybe you're not getting enough benefit, ironically, from doing two of these things at once for it to be worth trying to play this card. Yeah. 
But let's just talk about each mode. So prevent all damage, target instant or sorcery spell would deal this turn. Which instant Light- sorcery do you have in mind there? Just lightning bolt. Okay. You're going to pay two mana to stop, stop a lightning bolt? Well, that's my point, though, is you're not just stopping a lightning bolt. You're getting one of the other modes as well. But it might not be worth it to get one of those other modes. So that's the kind of the, the conflict yeah. I'm trying to tease out here. So this counters okay. lightning bolts, basically. Okay. Is there another instant or sorcery that deals damage in vintage? Aside from tendrils, not that I can think of. Tendrils doesn't deal damage. Plus, it's loss, loss of life. And, 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 it would, yeah, it only... It would, it would be grape shot, I think. <laughs> yeah. There must be one other... Um, Oh, okay. So it would stop some some of the interesting sideboard technology lately, like pyroclasm, for instance. Yes. You could stop all the damage from a pyroclasm. Or a volcanic fallout. Or a volcanic fallout, yeah. Not from slice and dice, ironically. And, and you can't it can't stop toxic deluge. Huh. huh. So it it it's hit or miss in terms of its ability to keep your creatures alive if you're playing a green white beats deck. Yeah. Let's look at the next one. Target player sacrifices an enchantment. All right, so that gives you game against Oath. Yep. And if Mythrealize starts being played. Yep. <laughs> Are there any other enchantments you would want someone to sacrifice if you're playing green-white? Fast Bond. Okay, that's relevant. You could you could get rid of their Fast Bond with a gush on the stack. All right, then. Put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. Doesn't really merit discussion in Vintage. It's not worth it. But it might, ironically, be the mode that you choose to go along with whatever mode you're going yeah, I mean, for. And a mentor, and a mentor, it's plus two, plus two. So. That's a good point. Okay. And then the last one, target creature you control fights target creature you don't control. So this could be straight-up removal if you're playing green-white beats and your opponent rolls out Delver of Secrets or Pyromancer or Mentor, depending, of course, on what creature you're choosing to fight that Mentor with. But regardless, it's going to kill Delvers and Young Pyromancers every day. And in certain cases, it could take down Lodestone Golem or Bigger Prey. I think if you... Now, I, I think I've got this right, but if you have a Grizzly Bear and you choose the last two modes, the plus one, plus one counter and the fight, you're going to get the benefit of the plus one, plus one counter during the fight. So a Grizzly Bear would take down a Lodestone Golem with those two modes combined. I think aside from a, a pure combo like Belcher, this card has game for a green-white beat stack against most of the major archetypes in the format. It's just it's just kind of weak game. Yeah. <laughs> and it's ironic that you have a bevy of options. You have four options at your disposal. But at any given moment, the situation you're responding to in Vintage are so narrow and specific that even though you could get another option, it doesn't really help. Yeah, they're all relevant abilities. They're just not strong. Right. Yeah. I think this is a, this card has interesting potential as a sideboard card for green-white beats, maybe humans, because it helps a little bit against several archetypes. You can bring it in against Oath. It's not that great against Shops. But you can bring it in against other creature decks, like Mentor decks or Delver. And it's actually, I think it's legitimately good against Delver, because there your plus one, plus one counters matter more, and the fight is going to be removal. You could, you could even counter a Lightning Bolt and fight their creature and get an awesome two-for-one. I don't know. I just like the versatility, and as I was analyzing the modes, I thought that, man, it's surprisingly relevant in Vintage, but it might just not be good enough. Or there might only be one archetype you can play it in, which is which is a very small portion yeah. of the metagame. Relevant, but extremely marginal. Mm-hmm. So are you saying zero? I'm saying zero. Okay. I'm really, really inclined to go non-zero on this one, but really? I think... I, I think Here's what I think. Someone could play this. Someone could make top eight with humans, for example, and then never play it again because <laughs> they they do okay with it, but realize it's just not worth it. That's the, the only future I can see where I'd be punished for saying zero here. So I'm going to stick with zero. But hey, someone go out there and prove me wrong. I'd love to see Dromoka's command in vintage. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of cards I'd love to see in vintage, Narset Transcendent. Two white, blue. Planeswalker Narset. 
She has starting loyalty of six. Plus one, look at the top card of your library. If it's a non-creature, non-land card, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. Minus two, when you cast the next instant or sorcery spell from your hand this turn, it gains rebound. And minus nine, you get an emblem with your opponents can't cast non-creature spells. That's a heck of an emblem. Yeah. Her first ability is is pretty uh, evocative of Delver of Secrets isn't it? It is. And therefore it benefits, I think, from several of the kind of interactions that Delver does. It plays quite well with cards like Ponder and Preordain, Sensei's Divining Top, Mystical Tutor, that kind of thing. And her second ability, the rebound giving ability, is pretty strong when you consider the things you could be rebounding in Vintage. But rebound itself has issues just with simple speed in Vintage. Something happening next turn might not be soon enough. I think she has the highest loyalty, starting loyalty for any four mana planeswalker we've seen so far with six going up to seven if you plus her on the turn you player so she can even take a hit from a lodestone golem which is which is kind of crazy when you think about it she can just soak up a hit from a lodestone golem yeah. and still have two loyalty left to rebound something on the next turn which against workshops would be awesome if you think about the things you might be rebounding against them now her I, I, her starting loyalty is really phenomenal and she's I don't, I don't know sort of what the general ratio of ultimate to starting is but hers is pretty close right uh, oh you mean the how many turns it takes to go ultimate yeah the standard these days is about three to the median is three turns okay so she's within that range yeah she's definitely within the range because her pl- plus one means you it takes four turns actually to ultimate her so she's within the standard these days I I have to say that um, I can understand how people would be excited about this card, but you know the the point of comparison has to be Jace, right? Mm-hmm. The four mana planeswalker, and Jace's brainstorm ability just I think blows away her plus one. And even though you're building towards the the, the ultimate, I feel like Jace is going to win before that. Um, and I, I'm not really excited about the rebound because of the way rebound works. It just comes right back in your next in your upkeep. I mean, it's not like you can like mana drain. The rebound, you know, as a re- and then rebound it. You've got to, you've got to be something proactive. It's got to be something mm-hmm. like a knight's whisper or a demonic tutor. I mean, I don't dig through time. A dig through time. I guess dig through time would be an insane rebound effect here. But <laughs> but dig through, t- you know, um, I don't know. If you're spending four mana to get to this, you're probably impeding your way towards dig. And and I mean, so dig is probably the 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 best example of that because it needs to be something in blue and white and heavy blue and white. I mean, I guess another good one would be like Merchant Scroll. I don't know. Just it just doesn't strike me as super exciting. It's worth pointing out that in order for rebound to mean anything, the spell that it has must resolve. Yeah. So a counter spell on our spell with rebound gets effectively both copies, if you will. Yeah, great point. That said, the the addition of dig through time to the format and how popular it's been, you can readily whip together a blue-white control-ish style deck that has fully 10 to 15 cards that you'd really love to rebound. (laughs) So... I think it's not hard to craft value from that play. It is tricky in a vintage context to put a spell onto the stack that you really want to rebound the turn you cast her. Yeah. But there's a fantastic candidate for that in Gush. That's true. That is. So you play her on. You play your second land, or you play you play land go or land preordain. Turn two, you play your next land and you interact with your opponent in one way or another. But turn turn three. You'd have to have the third land for it, plus a mox, though. That's just competing with Gush Brainstorm with Jace, which is probably just as good. Uh, 
Yes, that's a good point. Because of the synergy, the literal synergy between returning the lands to your hand and the brainstorm, you get almost effectively as many cards from Gush Brainstorm with Chase as you would from just double Gush yeah. with Narset. So that's a fair point. I don't know. I can I can think of board states where I would rather have a Narset than a Jace, but it's the implication is is that the game goes many turns, many turns where where I'm just getting extra value out of mixing up drawing one card and then casting a spell and drawing one card and casting a spell. The spell that you cast with Rebound, if it nets you two cards, and it has great selection like Dig does, but if it nets you two cards, then I think you're you're basically coming out ahead of brainstorming with Jace every turn. Because if I double up on Dig through time, you know, look at 14, select four, yeah, no, is way better than insane. two brainstorms with Jace. No, that's insane. That's that's true. And, and, I, no, it's only it's only and you don't compare it with two giant brainstorms. You compare it with one brainstorm because that's just one of her activations. So, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind after you said it that Dig is the is the the ideal sort of candidate for this ability. But I mean, given the constraints of the colors and so on and so forth. But part of the value of Dig is that you want to be able to dig at um, instant speed. You know, like at the time yeah. when the most vulnerable. And this absolutely this really narrows Dig into a you know it it really just sets up a situation where you get blown out. I would imagine there were other less maybe powerful but more synergistic rebounded spells that we haven't really thought of because we've never considered the matter this thoroughly. <laughs> but if you get to rebound a dig through time, you should probably win target game. <laughs> I mean, assuming yeah. both of them resolve. But even if the second, first one or second one doesn't. So that's another benefit for Narset is that, okay, the first one has to resolve. My bad. But she also creates a the rebounded copy at an awkward time for your opponent, right? Because you get a good theoretically good free spell during your upkeep which if they want to fight over they're committing resources early in your turn that you don't need to fight back on because if it's happening during your upkeep it already happened during your prior turn and you probably still have narset in play maybe not but you probably have a narset and a free spell on your upkeep and if they want to interact with that rebounded copy then more power to them because they're just spending and tapping resources on your upkeep and then you draw a card and get to proceed with your turn Maybe Narset again. She starts with six loyalty, so you get three rebound activations out of her. Bam, bam, bam. So if they fight over that second yeah. dig through time on your upkeep, then geez, you get to have your way with them for the rest of that turn. I see. I just think that she. How many times have you played a Jace the Mind Sculptor and you brainstormed and you got good value? You know, maybe you put two lands back and you upgraded some cards in your hand, but it's plus just plus one card. You pitch those two cards you got to Force of Will and you're brainstorming into another, you know, two blanks and another new card next turn. Jace is good. Jace is very good, but there are times when he is not even enough to overpower someone. And I think that in some of those cases, Narset will be good enough to overpower someone. Hmm. Also, what with the lateral growth of creatures like Pyromancer and Mentor these days, simply having high loyalty is a thing. Jace has really gone down in playability lately, thanks to young Pyromancer, and more recently Mentor. And he has major issues. If your opponent has a just a single Pyromancer with one elemental, when you cast Jace, you have serious considerations of the fact that I'm only going to get to use this Jace once. I might have just paid four for Concentrate. Narset is going to live longer than Jace in some of those scenarios. Oh, and she's way better with removal spells. Rebounding a Lightning Bolt, for example, or a Plow. That's a good point. Yeah, I think, you know, there's no doubt that... I may have just been way too hasty when I said that I couldn't think of great... I think the the problem I have is that, that you really can't use counter magic. Counter magic tends to be the biggest sector of, not, of, of non-land cards in any of these blue decks. And, and not being able to rebound a, 
counter magic is just a big problem. But there's no doubt that Plow and Dig and, and a lot of the restricted cards are going to be great cards to rebound. But I don't like the fact, I mean, again, and Gush is another good one, but I don't like the fact that you're pressured into doing it at this specific point in time. Mm. Well, that's fair. She definitely prices you into certain plays. But it's worth noting that if you have, if you truly have that hand with only counter magic, her plus one ability is still the same card advantage as Jace's Brainstorm. Both of them are plus one card. And if you truly have that hand of counter magic, it can't be, it's not capable of being proactive, so to speak, then Jace's Brainstorm is frequently just going to be shuffle up a few cards. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, you're luck, maybe you luckily change one counter spell into a better one. You're, you're downselling Jace, and we know Jace is one of the best creature cards in, in so. <laughs> What I'm saying is if you have constructed a scenario in which Narset's rebound is not useful or good, in that scenario, Jace's brainstorm is also not maximized, right? That's my point. Okay. Both of those abilities suffer in a scenario where you're being purely reactive. Now, granted, Jace's ability is better at, at shifting roles in that situation because it lets you see some cards and maybe you change role where Narset isn't as good at that. And also, Narset's plus one is not a sure thing by any stretch. No. That ability is going to whiff a handful of times unless you're fixing. Definitely. Yeah, so you're playing tops and preordains in this deck, I think, this theoretical deck, but that's not a reach. So, I mean, so what's your prediction, the bottom line here? I think this card is going to be aggressively tested. I think you might end up seeing some people who are playing two to three Jaces in things like Bomberman or Landstill variants. You might see one or two of those Jaces become Narsets in certain examples. Well, okay, Landstill is probably a bad example. That's the most reactive deck there is. But maybe Bomberman, maybe there's a new in-between point for Mentor-style control decks where Narset is preferred over Jace. I, can't, I don't know. I just, I just think it's possible. Yeah, I can't help but shake the feeling that a lot of people are going to try and mess around with this card as well. But I, I, I'm very skeptical. And I don't like being skeptical. I want to be open-minded and optimistic. <laughs> But in this particular case, I I just think it's going to have a hard time competing with two of the really strong blue planeswalkers that are that are seeing play right now. Yeah, you know it's it's funny. How many times have we said during set reviews, oh, maybe somebody will turn their Jace into one of these, <laughs> and it just so rarely happens. <laughs> I don't know. I I feel like non-zero on this one because I don't know. It's the the real difference between zero and one for me right now is just testing. I have not played a dozen games with this in a deck to see if it really pans out. Also, Dak Faden has seen such an increase in popularity lately, lately in in Pyromancer and Mentor style decks that I can't imagine anyone replacing a Dak with a Narset. That just wouldn't happen. Yeah, that's that's everything. You know, that comparison right there really tempers my my expectations for seeing anyone succeed with this is because of how popular Dak is lately. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with zero, but it's quite a hesitant zero. That brings us to Sarkin Unbroken. This is an interesting one. Two red, blue, green. <laughs> this card is this card is definitely the uh, the face of the set, right? I mean, this is yeah. <laughs> Sarkin is the is the MacGuffin of the whole story, and he represents <laughs> the, the timeline and everything that has happened. And this card is meant to summarize that which has happened across this block. Planeswalker Sarkin, starting loyalty of four, plus one, draw a card, then add one mana of any color to your mana pool. Minus two, put a 4-4 red dragon creature token with flying onto the battlefield. Minus eight, search your library for any number of dragon creature cards and put them onto the battlefield. That ultimate is funny because, yes, you could play with any number of dragons in Vintage, but you probably would have zero (laughs) because this card is all about plus one and minus two. Draw a card, 
then add one mana of any color to your mana pool. That's actually, a, I think, a deceptively really, really, really useful ability in Vintage. Yeah. I mean, just think of all the stuff. You you can be activating top, you could be playing Preordain, you could be casting Lightning Bolts, you can be casting Creatures, any number of the rug-type creatures that we know all know and love, but also fixing your mana against workshops, you know, getting you the color you need to flashback Ancient Grudge or cast Trigon Predator, just... Rug is a well-established color combination in Vintage. has been very powerful for the last two years, at least. And fixing your mana in that archetype is actually kind of fun and interesting. But a five-mana Planeswalker does not dovetail with Delver's primary strategies over the last few years at all. The overall mana cost obscures the actual inputs required for this, which happen to be, mm-hmm. again, green, blue, and red. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the way that... I mean, it, it does happen to coincide with Rug Delver's abilities, uh, uh, but there's no way that deck would use this card. I mean, no. a 4-4 dragon creature is nothing for a deck like that. And I, I don't think there's enough value in the world to make get me to pay green, blue, and red, and two colorless to just draw one card and get one mana out of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought we should discuss Sarkhan because you should really talk about every Planeswalker within reason. Sure. But I agree. And he's blue. Yeah, he's definitely so, And he's a very playable color combination. And his first two abilities, if they're on a Planeswalker that costs two less, right, would be amazing. If, if he didn't have the colorless mana cost in his cost and just no ultimate, just ignore the ultimate. But the whole plus one draw card mana and minus two, four, four dragon, if the mana cost was so much less, would actually be really cool. But they can't really make four, four flying dragons much cheaper in standard. So I guess we're out of luck. <laughs> ironically ironically if he just made a tutu like a, if he made a jinn just a tutu flying jinn or a drake a la yeah you know talran's invocation or whatever and cost three mana he'd be so much better in vintage but probably still in every other format too yeah i don't know it's hard to make create it's hard to make planeswalkers that generate creatures playable in vintage well, this, it's just full stop yeah this guy's function is just to help like you know this is this is the star of the movie the magic movie right like all the <laughs> He's like the dragon tamer. So. <laughs> That's a fair point. Okay, so zeros across the board for Sarkhan. Yeah. All right, that was fun. Let's talk about what I consider to be the coolest card in this set. <laughs> living Lore for three blue creature avatar. As Living Lore enters the battlefield, exile an instant or sorcery card from your graveyard. Your graveyard. Living Lore's power and toughness are each equal to the Exile's card converted mana cost. Whenever Living Lore deals combat damage, note to anything, you may sacrifice it. If you do, you may cast the Exiled card without paying its mana cost. As base power and toughness of star star. Yep. So you cast this, it becomes a living incarnation of a spell in your discard pile, and you know you can attack people with it and whenever it deals combat damage either to your opponent or to a creature then you can just turn it back into that spell for free let's just jump just to dive in on this one just jumping through the prefatory sort of you know preliminary remarks the main thing i kept honing in on with this card is supposing i use its ability make it come i mean supposing i cast it and then i copy a card in my graveyard i kept asking myself when would i want to sacrifice this thing (laughs) isn't the power and toughness just probably going to be better a lot of the times than whatever i'm getting into play like let's say for example just by way of one example you know i have a gush 
and I copy a gush, right? Mm-hmm. I'm attacking, and this thing's a 5-5. Five, five. Like, at what point am I going to be like, you know, I don't want to attack with this anymore. I'm going to, or <laughs> block, I'm going to turn this into a gush. You know, it's it's hard to imagine. Exactly. I disagree that it's hard to imagine. Well, what I mean, it's hard to, it's not that it's hard to imagine. Of course I can imagine it. What I'm saying is, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, is it easy, is it simple to envision the scenario in which it's clear that that's the choice you want to make? I think it is, okay. honestly. I think using the scenario you just outlined, you you could resolve a gush early on, and then turn or two later, well, maybe the same turn. It's only four mana. Yeah, Yeah, so maybe you gush into this and replay your land, and you've got a mox. Yeah, maybe this is a turn three play, and you imprint your gush. If you're playing a Delver mirror, I mean mirror, quote-unquote, you're playing Living Lore, but if you're playing against Delver, and they've got a Delver, or maybe they've got a young Pyromancer with a couple of tokens out, then I could totally see swinging in with this thing. They probably chump with a token, but once you get to the point where they have young Pyromancer and they're chumping with tokens, wouldn't you rather just see, turn this back into Gush again, since they're just going to chump it? See, but my question was, wouldn't it be clear? No, I, I don't... Uh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I kind of... Uh-huh. Like, the... the the value is probably going to be on having the five five, you know. Well, I, I don't. I think mean, that's the thing is that it just seems to me that you're going to be confronted with a lot of weird, ambiguous situations where you're not quite sure what the right play is, and the strategy. <laughs> the strategy is going to seem like you know you probably want to keep the pressure on, and then the point, interesting. The point at which you you cut, take your foot off the pedal, and turn this into whatever it is, it's going to be like a. A, a desperation move. Well, I think I have a different threshold for clarity than you do. <laughs> I, I guess I, I don't envision it being very difficult to make that choice a lot of the time, because I think Gush is kind of a good middle of the road example. It, it, I think it's the epitome of the middle of the road, right? Five five is the sort of power and toughness in vintage where you start to think. I could finish this game out with this creature, or Gush is still a pretty good spell. I could hit them once and get free five damage on my Gush. You know, that's kind of the right in the middle. But there's as soon as you deviate very far from either way, I think the choice becomes quite clear. If you go down the low side and you start looking at cards like Tinker or you know a counter to sure. Tinker or maybe even Resolved or you know Thirst yeah. for Knowledge or something yeah, like in the three to two range. Function is if its function is recursion, then Snapcaster Mage is just usually going to be better. So. Uh, well, let's not. Let's not get off the main point here about ch- decision making. I agree with you, but let's not let's not leave this one yet. If you go lower in the the mana cost curve, I think the choice becomes far easier. A tinker is way better than a three three, and, or that is to say, it's going to be clear when a tinker is way better than a three three. You don't have an artifact, sure, your three three is better, but if you do, I think you're eighty or ninety percent to play tinker. <laughs> If you if you go up the scale, there's really nothing between five and eight that's playable in vintage. But as soon as it's an eight eight from your treasure cruise or a dig through time, then I also think it's pretty clear because an eight eight is mostly going to be a two turn clock. And if you're hitting them with it, then I think it's going also going to be clear whether or not the eight eight is going to win you that turn game next turn or you need the dig through time yeah, to win I, the game. Like in the case of a restricted card, I mean. The restricted card is usually going to be better. But in the case of, like, you know, I mean, in the case of the usual spell that's going to be in your graveyard on turn three when you play this, you know, it's this card's either going to be tiny and it's going to be way overcosted, yep. or yep. it's going to be a gush or a dig, in which case, like, an 8 8 is may just is probably better in most situations than sacrificing it into a dig. I think, I think you're right on. That doesn't make yeah. this card playable, but I think along the axis you just described that that's fair. So the question then becomes, yeah. can you afford to try and play a 4-mana 8-8 eight, eight, or 5-5 five, five in Vintage that has some upside? I mean, some vintage upside? I mean, it's going to get pyroblasted, and then you're going to be sitting with nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. 
and by by means of okay so let's point let's point out another key thing here which is that yes you have to pay four mana and yes you have to deal damage with it but when those two conditions are met you are casting that spell without paying anything more so it is one of the easier ways to cast another dig through time after you've resolved one honestly and i say easy in quotes yeah. meaning that's a, that's a it's, it's hard to it's hard to manufacture a single card that would let you recast a dig right then and there you know what i mean yeah that's a good point so with as popular as dig is it's it's worth pointing that out but at the same time we're talking about mid-game shenanigans post dig resolution so it's not hard to come up with good magic cards in that context right if you're resolving dig then you're going to know whether or not a living lore or any number of other cards in your deck are already good enough to win the game I don't know. I thought it was fun discussion point. You like you generally like to talk about cards that are unprecedented, and this one is unprecedented. That's true. Uh, and this card does have sweet artwork. <laughs> yes, it does. That is pretty neat. Um, the, the scroll beast. Yeah, <laughs> it's like something out of a Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> it's actually kind of a throwback, in my opinion. It evokes Arabian Nights to me. Interesting. It reminds me of antiquities. It reminds me of the Jabberwocky or something. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> um, I. I uh, I like what this card's doing, trying to do, and I, I definitely understand why they... It, it definitely has synergy with with Delve spells. So it could be a quite large creature and could allow you to play mm. a Delve card, but I just um, I just don't... And it, it has synergy with Gush, you know, midpoint there. I just don't think there's a natural place for this. Four mana is all of it. It's very expensive for Vintage. And that's a rarefied space for cards like, like Jace. Yeah, it's true. Well, aside from Workshops, of course, and decks like Dredge that don't pay mana for their spells... The only four mana creature I can think of that sees play in Vintage is Rector and Salvagers, Re- Restoration Angel, Salvagers. Oh, Salvagers, yeah. So we're talking about some. And we're not not artifact, yeah. Not artifact, yeah. So Rector and Salvagers, I would lump into the sort of game-ending plays if they resolve. And despite how big an eight-eight could be, this is actually not one of those plays. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting though. It is interesting. I mean, it's it definitely has the potential for card advantage, but the limitation mm-hmm. is just when it deals combat damage. That's the problem. Yeah. If it had like more more flexibility in that in that um, requirement, like if you could do it at the beginning at the rather at the end of a turn or at the beginning of upkeep as well, mm-hmm. like then I think you'd you'd have more more space to have a analysis or conversation about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And you you touched on this with your pyroblast example, but we should state that this is a way of taking a spell of sorts and exposing it to all the worst possible removal, because <laughs> it's all the counters and all the creature removal. And even if you successfully resolve this and hit them with it, you're still just casting the spell, so they can just counter the spell, right? Yep. You, even though you're paying no mana for it, they can still just fluster storm it or whatever. Yeah. So it's it, it's a lot of weaknesses in addition to its mana cost. That's right. I mean, you just you're just casting the spell. It's still counterable. Yep. All right, let's move on. This is one we touched on in our summary of the set as a whole. Display of dominance. 1G instant. Choose one. Destroy target blue or black non-creature permanent or permanence you control can't be the target of blue or black spells your opponents control this turn. Now, this kind of I mean, green two mana instant that has some really narrow applications, but the best one we can think of right off the bat, I think, is Jace. So this just straight up destroys a Jace for two, no matter what its loyalty is at. There are very few other blue or black non-creature permanents that see play in Vintage, uh, such that a green deck would want to remove them, especially. Uh, Non-restricted blue or black permanents, yeah. Yeah. Yes, this can kill energy flux and necro or bargain, sure. But if necro or bargain are in play, you want to do more than just destroy them. And energy flux, the green decks don't care about energy flux. So 
really this can just destroy Jace, as far as I can see. Back to basics, I suppose. Rarely played. Yeah. Oh, Mystic Remora. It can destroy Mystic Remora. Sure. But green decks, I don't know. Most decks that are be playing a green card like this don't care about Mystic Remora that much either. So let's talk about the other one. Permanence you control can't be the target of blue or black spells your opponents control this turn. Okay, that's a little bit of a broader spectrum, right? Yeah. You got your dismember, your various bounce spells. Well, I guess it's all bounce yeah. spells after that, right? Chain yeah. of Vapor and Repeal and fire, uh, Ice, I suppose. What else? It's only blue or black spells, so it doesn't stop Chase's Unsummon. doesn't stop Trigon's Destruction. doesn't stop a Hercules Recall. doesn't stop Hercules Recall. Hmm. Well... I don't know. I don't feel like we need to cover this one anymore. <laughs> it was it was brought to our attention, and it does have a, cute, a couple of specific narrow applications, but I don't think they're nearly good enough. Yeah. And if they're word, they're things that green doesn't necessarily worry about in most cases. Yeah. And Jace is not as omnipresent in the metagame now as he was a few years ago, such that you might need to dedicate spots to removing him. Yep. All right. Time for another command. This time, Colagon's command for one black-red. Instant. Choose two. Return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. Target player discards a card. Destroy target artifact. Colagon's command deals two damage to target creature or player. So you got your raise dead, you got your funeral charm discard, you got your shatter, and you got your shock. For three mana at instant speed, it's worth noting that you can make them discard during their draw step if you want. Yeah, yeah, this card is a lot more exciting than the other command, I think. Um, Go on. Well, first of all, destroying an artifact is more relevant than destroying an enchantment. Definitely. Making opponent discard a card is, I think, better than anything on the other one. <laughs> as, as an ancillary ability, I would totally agree. Yeah. Um. You know. So those are both high, high highly relevant effects. So is shock. And and then I was gonna say, yeah, shock is um, also quite good. Um. You know, you're not gonna be able to necessarily kill a mentor, but you can definitely kill a pyromancer. You can definitely kill a delver. You can definitely do some damage to a DAC or a. Uh, a Jace. Mm-hmm. Revoker. Yeah, a Revoker. Um, you could get some spicy yeah. two-for-ones against shops with this. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you definitely. Um, and then returning a creature card to your graveyard from your, your hand is, is probably going to be useful at times as well. So. Yeah, the color combination is the thing that really stands out to me here, red and black. It's it doesn't this The effect doesn't graft well into anything in Vintage right now other than maybe Grixis control, like a, maybe a Pyromancer-style control deck. In which case, returning a previously killed Pyromancer to your hand is totally relevant. And uh, Snapcaster Mage, too. Yeah. If you Earlier in a game, if you'd spent a Snapcaster Mage and uh, jump, chump locked something, getting that back is like getting a spell back instead. That's kind of a neat interaction. But three mana. So Artifact Destruction generally does not cost this much in Vintage because of how much pressure Workshops puts on your mana. And for two dedicated colors also, meaning it's going to be difficult to cast this off of Moxen early in the game. Yeah. So that's not exciting. No. Despite the propensity for a two-for-one. I'd much rather have Ancient Grudge if I wanted to get two-for-ones against Workshops for three mana. Yeah, the casting cost is definitely a barrier and impediment, but it could, de- it could definitely be worth it. I mean, I'm not, I would not rule this card out. So let's say this is going into your sideboard of your Grixis kind of deck, either control or or combo control, in addition to some other workshop hate. Let's say you've got your three or four ingot chewers and then a couple of these. Aside from against chops, would you bring this in against anything else? Would you bring this in against Delver to get shock and raise dead or shock plus discard? Yeah, I mean, you could hit one of the time vault pieces and make them discard their counter spell. Um, okay. Or like, you know, they, they can't use right there. Um, I... I don't know. Um, 
this this card is definitely one of the cards that would be consideration in a multicolor control deck. Um, it's an Oscar Tan type card. <laughs> I imagine that I imagine that an increasingly dwindling amount of our audience knows what that means. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think this would be a sideboard card. It's just it's just not. This is not strong enough to bring in against workshops, but it's the kind of card that maybe you have as like a one of in the main deck. Oh, I see. Such that you don't need to bring it out against workshops. Yeah. Like you've got you've got the artifact thing for the artifact decks. Their thing for time vault when you need it there. You can destroy mm-hmm. a pyromancer and a mox. You know, you can re- recur your one of your like snapcasters or something and and make your opponent discard a card. Yeah, I mean, this is just a one of. Interesting. I hadn't considered it that way. As it it does a lot of. It's kind of like wear tear. In that sense. Yeah, Word Tear is more of a sideboard card. I think this is more of a main deck card. Interesting. I hadn't considered that perspective. You know, we talked about, in this same exact context, a red-black card in years past, Rakdos Charm, which was choose one, exile all cards from target player's graveyard, destroy target artifact, or each creature deals one damage to its controller. Yeah. So we talked about that card and its ability to host dredge or shops for two mana. I remember that conversation. I think the problem is we felt it was the third ability wasn't good enough, and right. and um, the in either piece of the other was not good enough in either one of those key matchups. But right. this has enough holistic value utility that it's not a it's not a narrow sideboard card and it's just going to be generally good. It's also a card advantage, so we can't ignore that. That's a good point. Rakdos Charm is it's just Shatter or Tormod's Crypt, which are which are reasonable effects, but just not. But they they always cost less than the Roxos Charm does in every matchup. Does there happen to be any guidance on how you pronounce this card? Uh, you mean Coligon? Is that how it's pronounced? That's how I've heard. Although that is by no means an official representation. All right, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a reasonable interpretation too, given that we've known the precedent of cons of Tarkir, which would suggest that G H A N is pronounced Gan, <laughs> okay. and therefore. K O L A as cola is is not sure. The difference between the O and the A is also I think reasonable. Another interpretation could be Kala, but I don't think in the cons context an O would be pronounced the same as an A. I'm reading a lot in, but I've always heard Colagon. You know, Kevin, one aspect of this card that we should mention is the, the, the scope of the discard effect is both perhaps broader than you'd want it to be and also narrower than you want it to be. Broader because your opponent can just discard a land, which is something they can't do with in some other discard effects, but narrower because they get to, and, and frankly, they get to pick, pick the card of their choice. So that also makes it perhaps... So you're, you're saying that it, in some other contexts, forcing someone to discard a land would be very powerful, and most discard spells don't let you do that these days. Well, you could imagine. You could imagine that. Um, th- I mean, they're actually. I'm kind of saying the opposite. That. Um, th- well, y- yeah. Y- actually, there are definitely going to be situations where you know, like, like this. They, they're forced to discard no matter you know something. Period. Right. So that's. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not like not like you. Sometimes you play spell like a duress effect or whatever. And you look at their hand and there's like, oh, nothing I can take. Right. Yeah. Sure. So th- this doesn't have that problem. But on the but by the same token, because it's not targeted, they can just discard a random land. Doesn't match up well with gush yeah yeah i think that's fair i think the un the unrestricted discard is almost always not in your favor (laughs) because it comes on cards like this but if there were a duress or thought seize variant that just said any card right yeah then you'd want it so i don't know your point is well made 
that there will be times when this discard will just be i'm just doing this for the pure card advantage yes i'm just going to get a land out of your hand it's going to be relatively inconsequential but there will be other times when a properly timed one of these will get something really valuable because you do it at a key pressure point after a counter battle or someone when, when your opponent's hand is low. But that's not a good reason to play this card, right? Trying to craft those kind of scenarios are just going to be corner cases where you might get a, a really big valuable discard. Yeah, ultimately I don't think this card's going to see any play, but it was definitely interesting and worth discussing. Yeah, hopefully I think see, I agree with you. It's right on the edge. Hopefully see more of these cards in the future. I like the fact that we have even had this much consideration for a multicolor instance. I mean, multicolor instants are not common in vintage. That's true. There are there are a handful of split cards and other cards that are similar in concept, but a true I pay two colors of mana for this spell effect are not common in vintage. So the fact that we're getting close is cool. Uh, as an aside, I think we should um, handle both the brain geysers simultaneously. I think that's a fine suggestion. Let's do it right now. Steve's talking about Commune with Lava and Damnable Pact. Two good titles. <laughs> commune Commune is X red red. Instant. Instant, mind you. Exile the top X cards of your library until the end of your next turn. You may play those cards. Damnable Pact is XBB, Sorcery, target player draws x cards and loses x life so what's notable about um demo damnable pack is that you can use it to kill your opponent by making them lose x life so it's a doubles is a is a drain life he has a drain kind of a drain life or, or a fireball if you will yeah commune with lava's interesting sort of condition is that you have to you can you have to use the cards by the end of your next turn so it's definitely the kind of card that you can play on your opponent's end step and then untap with all of your mana available and try and play all the spells yep. of course the, the first thing we should just mention is that rain geyser is the same casting cost does the same thing at sorcery speed and sees no vintage play and hasn't for years um and um it, it does not have the condition that you can only use them until end of turn. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, the, the fundamental limitation with this card is the fact that, you know, you have to use the cards until the end of the next turn. And so, therefore, probably not going to be drawing counter spells, which is really what's most powerful about Brain Geysering. Um, right. I, uh, the only way this card could possibly see play is if, A, there's a deck in Vintage that wants Brain Geyser, but B, can't use it because it's blue. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those there's a deck for which both conditions hold. I think the last point you just made is the, the key one in the Vintage context. The reason these cards are being printed by Wizards is to provide grain, Brain Geyser-like functionality that's in flavor for other colors. Uh-huh. Vintage basically doesn't need that. Yeah. Because we can play Brain Geyser (laughs) and all its other variants like Stroke of Genius. There is... We've talked about a number of red cards over the past few years. Yeah. And the review of said card in each case has ended with, this would be playable if there was a deck that needed this but couldn't pay whatever the blue equivalent was. (laughs) Yeah. Like Prophetic Flame Speaker, you know, the double Ophidian ostensibly with double strike, which we concluded in the same exact way. And in every case so far, there no deck has materialized. While there is this. pressure, there's pressure in vintage on mana bases and their color. There's not so much pressure that you can't still comfortably play three colors in vintage. Right. And, and I mean, Brain Geyser is a card that actually is not a bad card. I mean, 
It's not great in vintage, but it's not one of those cards, that, and there are probably more than a few, that were played back in the day that were actually not that good and people yeah. overvalued. It's not actually the case with Brain Geyser. Like, I play old school Magic, like Magic 93, 94, and Brain Geyser is insane. It's really, yeah. really good. Um, and Brain Geyser continued to be good for many years. Definitely. Definitely. So it's, it's, you know, it's not the case that you know, these cards are horrible. They're just not good in contemporary vintage. Yeah. The only I just want to add on to what I was getting at before too, and to say that the primary reason why these kind of cards don't see play is because there's no reason to step away from blue. You could have a heavy red or a heavy black deck and still play lots of blue cards too if you wanted to, and then bets people do that. The only re- reason I think one of these cards or like Prophetic Flame, Flame Speaker might see play is if there was some very compelling reason to stay out of another color. Mm-hmm. Something like a Back to Basics or a Blood Moon or a Magus of the Moon, that kind of thing. And while those kind of effects do exist, they're not very compelling yet. Future printings could make it such that there was a really, really strong reason to play mono red in vintage, in which case we might start looking at some of these cards again. But that would take a really unusual and interesting card to do. As it stands, I'm going zeros for both of these. What do you say? Definitely. Okay. Let's talk next about Virulent Plague. <laughs> Love this card. Two, yeah, let, pretty cool. Can I do the honors? Please go ahead. Two black enchantment. Creature tokens get minus two, minus two. It is the very interesting variant of Engineered Plague, which, by the way, has seen play in the VSL this week against Merfolk. David Williams used it to pretty good effect. He got <laughs> Randy Bueller to scoop a game to Engineer Plagues. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because this card would not be half as interesting if it wasn't for that particular uh, match in the VSL this week. The other obvious comparison is Illness in the Ranks. Definitely, which gives, which exactly gives creatures not. It gives all creatures or token creatures minus one, minus one. It's token creatures. Minus one, minus one. Yeah. Yeah, and Illness in the Ranks costs how much again? One, a single black. Yeah. So, I mean, just to just to, to point out some things, I think that it would be useful for our audience if we indexed what Engineer Plague hits, and then by comparison, what this hits. And start with this. So the yeah. primary tokens in the, in the format are beyond Young Pyromancer and Mentor tokens. Bridge from Below tokens have to be quite quite relevant. Um, there are uh, obviously Forbidden Orchard tokens as well, and then so Spirit tokens, and then there are some marginal tokens like Worm Coil Engine tokens and things like that. Uh, Precursor Golem tokens. Um, mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that um, you know it's interesting that this, as comparison to Illness in the Ranks, does stop all the bridge tokens. Yes, a single one of these. Yes. Whereas you would need multiples of either illness or engineered plague to, to truly shut down bridge tokens. Right. Um, in, in comparison, I, I think engineered plague is much more limited. It can definitely hit. There are a lot of humans out there right now that it can. Yes, there are. And that that's no small thing. Um, it can hit pyromancers and pyromancer tokens and mentor tokens. But the fundamental problem with engineered plague is that it, it can it can't kill a, a mentor. It just won't kill a mentor. And yeah. and you can't kill both pyromancer and all of its tokens so you have to choose choose same thing with mentor yeah ironically and i don't know if as intentional on part of the design team or not i i can't speak one way or the other but it just so happens that pyromancer and mentor make creature type tokens that are different than their inherent types yeah um now you should bring up the vsl situation for why engineered plague is good though go ahead go ahead <laughs> well for those of you who didn't watch dave williams is playing uh this this trimester is playing a a somewhat unusual multicolor landstill deck with black in it and he brought in engineered plague against randy Bueller's merfolk all of whose creatures are merfolk 
And it turns out that if you get a second one of those things in play, <laughs> and there's no Lord already in play for the Merfolk deck, they legitimately have no outs, which is why Randy had to scoop one game, also, and why Dave and that why Dave almost won game three. He was on the cusp of getting a second engineered plague down in game three. Yeah, I mean it also um, it's also quite good at uh, um, dealing with true name nemesis, assuming they don't have lords in play. Yeah, absolutely. So illness in the rank is best at fighting the Delver and Mentor style tokens as well as Oath. It's a one mana answer that makes the creature Young Pyromancer or Monastery Mentor far less threatening, but it doesn't have any broader applications really. You can't bring it in against other stuff. It can't switch roles, and it's totally dead. I mean, so it's really good in those couple of applications, but pretty dead elsewise. Yeah. And engineered explo- I'm sorry, engineered plague, however, can do the things that Illness in the Rank does, and also you get the upside of being able to change targets if you want. You can do the humans. You can do the merfolk yeah you can you can even if you wanted to say it's like insectile aberration in an emergency so now that we've yeah now that we've indexed what both those cards do let's cross index them yeah you know i think this card is i think this card may be broader actually ironically well you basically take what illness in the ranks fights and you add dredge in yeah and powerfully so i yes. mean one of these is a really powerful answer to dredge yeah unfortunately the problem isn't its scope of application it's its casting cost in comparison it is hard to beat dredge with three mana spells yeah <laughs> but this thing pretty much shuts down dredge yes it does it just shuts it down you've got they've got to win with like narco I mean, taking up, yeah taking up bridges is pretty powerful so this would be a good addition to an other um, sideboard plan for Dredge. You would want something else that costs zero to two mana. But if you ha- if you already have some cages in your board or some Tormod's crypts, some rest in peace, that kind of thing, adding this to that mixture because it also helps you against other decks is totally reasonable. I think. I agree. But you would never want it as your primary strategy against Dredge. What what deck would you bring? The, what deck would have this for Oath too? Like some sort of Grixis deck might bring this in against Oath. How does that? Yeah, sure. And then it just it just takes all it assembles Time Vault and then just wins. That's totally yep. logical. Yep. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And Grixis and some of the derivations thereof, like Dave Williams' uh, Landstill deck that has black in it, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Or at some kind of Turbo Tez style deck. I do think this card is reasonable to consider, and if I, I think it's I think it's pretty fair to say that if Engineered Plague is playable in Vintage, then this card probably is also. <laughs> but the applications are actually so different that I'm not I'm not certain that actually holds in practice. Yeah, I... because I'd like to point out that despite the fact that this card answers monks and elementals pretty well, I really don't want to be bringing in three mana answers to young pyromancer. And it's not even a holistic answer; it's just kind yeah. of helps. I don't know about that. I'm not. I'm not concerned about that. I, I, I think you're not concerned about the efficiency of fighting a two mana threat with a three mana answer. No, I think one of the best answers. I think one I of the certainly best am. I think one of the best answers to mentor is another mentor. So I don't. I. I, I well, but that's a little bit of a oversimplification. I mean, <laughs> that's good because you're also winning the game with it. <laughs> you don't win the game with your play. You, but I think. I think you know. Um, I think this card is a problem. I think the uh, you know it it really does narrow what the mentor deck can do, and it does make the mentor a lot more vulnerable. So you could like dismembering the mentor. You know you can just pick off the mentors once this is in play, and, and I think that's that may be a viable plan. It's true that if the mentor is not growing laterally, it does not kill nearly as quickly as 
um, as it would when it's making its monks. I mean, when it's making monks, it's a threat next yeah. turn. When it's just by itself, it needs two or three turns to finish the deal, and that's in. I know that's without or with successfully uh, maintaining control of the game, basically. I'd like to point out that Illness in the Ranks hasn't. Illness in the Ranks put up a top eight according to Morphling.d one time last year. Wow. And that was in August. Wow. Wow. Prior to that, 2013 was the other the previous. Occurrence. So I guess the, so the question for us it's not is, it's not like illness it's not like we're upgrading a whole bunch of illness in the ranks to virulent plagues here. This is a this would be kind of unprecedented to see play. Well, the question for us then is is the additional you know usage or utility against dredge justify both the additional casting cost and usage where illness doesn't see play? And that's a tough question to answer. You know, the, again, the same thing is true of oath. You might shut down the oath, but are you shutting down show and tell with this card? You know, yeah. I don't know. It's um, I, I really I, I like this card. I think I think this card is playable. I just don't know if it will play. Yeah, it's it's ironic. I I didn't know this, but engineered plague is actually more played than illness in the ranks. Well, that happens. it actually it actually has several appearances in 2014 and one top eight in January of this year. I'm not surprised. I mean, Merfolk is a menace and. <laughs> And you know they're definitely and, and Pyromancer is truly strong. So yeah, I think this is playable. I, if if Engineer Plagueseen play, I am going to predict this will see play. Well, now that you put it in those terms, I'm trying to think. So what use cases are you really giving up if you switch your Engineered Plagues to this? You're giving up the Merfolk application, which is increasingly relevant yeah. given the VSL. You know what's interesting is this thing paired with the Deathrite Shaman is probably good enough to beat Dredge. I don't know. You don't think so? That's, well, it, so you're talking about turn one Deathrite. Yeah. You just have to survive their second turn. There are plenty of Dredge games and decks that can kill you on turn two. Yeah, or you have to be, or you have to be on the play. Yeah, so when I evaluate sideboard cards where time is of the essence, I'm assuming that I'm playing game three. That's the game you need to win. Because you're losing game one against Dredge, and you're winning game two on the play. If you're playing like a Landstill deck or Grixis deck, you know, and you have black, the question is, is this a good, a good enough sideboard card? And I suspect the answer may be yes. You can bring, yeah. you can bring it in against Oath, and you can win with Mistress Factories, or Time Ball Key in the case of Grixis. You, yeah. you can bring it in against Reg, and it's going to be a pretty strong hoser, assuming you can just get it out. You can bring it in against um, the Pyromancer Mentor decks, which are probably one of your worst matchups. This can do a lot of work. Now, the more I think about it, the stronger this card seems. You're right. In that Landstill, it's probably at its absolute best utility in a deck like Landstill there. Also pretty good against Grixis. It does a lot of what you want to do for Landstill too, because I was down on answering a Pyromancer <laughs> with a three mana spell. Yeah. But in Landstill, that's actually not that no. that's not that bad because if you reduce the Pyromancer to just a two one human, then your factories mop up. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll buy that. I think I think you've hit on something there. I think that this this is an upgrade for certain decks. If you've got Merfolk in your environment and you're the sort of person to play Engineered Plague, then you might not be making the change. Because just like this helps a lot against Dredge, the, uh, Engineered Plague helps a lot against Merfolk. Same goes for humans, I suppose. So if you're playing in a an arch, uh, uh, sorry, a metagame with Merfolk or humans that are reliably appearing, then you still want your Plague, I think. Are there any other tokens that we've missed? <sighs> I'm sure that there is something. Yeah. Token generation has become such a salient part of the format. It's kind of incredible. You touched on a couple of examples from workshops. The War Coil Legends. Yeah. And the Precursor Golem. So I don't, if there are, they're very corner case and not really relevant for your metric, I don't think. Well, that's very interesting. So you're going non zero. Yep. I'm going to say three. Okay. To inform your your opinion here, I'm looking at Engineered Plague's 2004. 
14 performance according to Morphlick.D, and I see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 7 appearances, and all of those in the sideboard, as expected, in, tw- in the whole year of 2014, with 1 in 2015 so far. So 1 to 2 appearances per quarter. Does that influence your opinion? That sounds exactly about right. I mean, okay, sure. Okay. I'll, I'll, go down to, I'll go down to 2. Okay. Totally fair. And given our conversation, I think that I am I'm right there with you, but I'm going to take the under and just say one. Okay. If I, you want to go two, I'll go three. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's no, it's no big deal. If I don't think the difference between two and three is going to I'm probably it's under, change I'm the probably fact. underestimating myth realized. I'd like to up my number, my prediction on that. Really? Yeah. Three just doesn't make sense as a predictive number for that card. It's either going to see no play or it's going to see more than three. What do you think is the right number, then? I'm going to say seven. Seven? That's a pretty big jump. Okay. Fascinating. I think it's probably going to be closer to, like, five, but we'll see. We've got a couple cards left. Next up is Dragon Whisperer for Red Red, Creature Human Shaman. It's a 2-2, but it has three abilities. Red colon, Dragon Whisperer gains flying until the end of the turn. One red colon, Dragon Whisperer gets plus one, plus zero until the end of the turn. And formidable four red red colon put a four four red dragon creature token on, with flying onto the battlefield. Activate this ability only if you control eight power worth of creatures. So a grizzly bear that has flying and fire breathing, and if you get to formidable, then it pumps out red dragons for six mana. Now this was brought to our attention on Twitter, and I don't know what the person who mentioned this to us was thinking exactly. <laughs> But I would say that our comments about Commune with Lava and retroactive comments with regard to things like Prophetic Flamespeaker hold true here as well. This this card does not match up well with the current creatures in Vintage. A 2-2, it can fly, so you can fly over a young Pyromancer or Mentor army. But assuming you have a couple of mountains, maybe you could pump pit three mana into this and make it five. Jeez. No, you can't. Sorry. The flying costs are red, and then the fire bleeding is two mana. So you'd have to pay red, red one to fly through the air and make this into a Delver. I'm sorry, an insectile aberration. I just think this creature matches up very poorly with the current creature bases in Vintage. Yeah, I'm sure that there are other creatures that are comparable that are just better and, not, and don't see any play. Yeah. But then again, if that mono red deck ever becomes a reality, then take another look at this, I suppose. <laughs> it is a human. Got that going for it. That's right. Cavern of Souls synergy. So I suppose there's something to be said for that. But uh, I don't really feel the need to counter this creature. So the cavern you let this interaction resolve? is... What's that? You let this card resolve? Yes, every day of the Me week. <laughs> <laughs> also, it doesn't match up well against your opponent's wastelands either. Yeesh. Our last trick for this set review is a fun one. We're going to have some fun talking about this, I think. Hedonist's Trove. Mm. Now, don't fall out of your chair, Steve, but the casting cost is 5 BB. Ouch, I just hit my head. (laughs) Enchantment. When Hedonist's Trove enters the battlefield, exile all cards from target opponent's graveyard. Okay, now we're talking. You may play land cards exiled with Hedonist's Trove. You may cast non-land cards exiled with Hedonist's Trove. You can't cast more than one spell this way each turn. So this is, for those of you who have been around for a while, this is an adaptation of sorts of Yawgmoth's Agenda, which had a similar effect on you. You could play cards out of your own 
graveyard, but only one per turn. This takes your opponent's graveyard, and then you can use it. You can play the lands, and you can cast spells one per turn. Can I ask a clarifying question about this? So this doesn't, unlike Yogmasa Genet, this does not restrict you to playing one card, one spell per turn. It just Correct. says that you can only play one spell out of your opponent's graveyard per turn. Correct. Okay. So it's more flexible there. It doesn't stop your own spell playing pace, but you can't go nuts with their graveyard. Now, clearly, I, at seven mana, yeah. this is just never going to get cast in Vintage. Right. I guess the, the the only use case I think we should be starting from really is assuming you can get this onto the stack or into play with something like Rector or Show and Tell or Omniscience. <laughs> let's let's just say for the sake of argument that we're getting it into play through one of those means. That's a that's a good argument to make. Okay. What do you think about this effect though? I think if you can get around the how hard it's going to be to get into play, this well, effect is actually pretty cool. You can't measure the effect until you make sort of a guess on how big the graveyard's going to be. So on average, when you get this into play, what do you expect their graveyard to look like, Kevin? Yeah, so uh, using the means we just described, I would say this is going to come into play somewhere in the turn three to five range. Yeah. On, I mean, that's probably the median. Yep. Rector is not very popular in Vintage these days. This sees a little bit of play. But show and tell through Omniscience is far more likely, given that that's a, a commonly played current deck. And that tends to happen in the turn three to five kind of range. There are some outliers on either side, of course. But let's say that you show and tell this in. Now, ignoring for the moment what your opponent might be bringing in, which is wildly different based on matchup. But on the turns three to five range, you're probably hitting two to four cards in the average vintage game. That sounds maybe that might be a little low, but right around there, yep. And yeah, depending on matchup. So I guess the result is going to be. I mean, it's just horribly matchup dependent, though. Yeah. Assuming you're a blue-based show and tell deck and you're playing against another blue-based opponent, you can expect to get a a fetch land or two, a cantrip or two, uh, and a cheap counterspell or two. You know, probably of those three categories of cards, you're going to get three to five of them, which is not great value if you're spending a whole show and tell on the effect. Yeah. And if you're playing such a deck, you're going to get much less value from all your other kinds of opponents. So against workshops, this is just unusably bad. I mean, you don't want to go getting their wastelands. Yes, it provides you additional mana, but you've already resolved a show and tell. That's a terrible avenue against them. Yeah, this card, this card should be called like one man's trash and other man's treasure or something. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're you're rooting through someone's graveyard and hoping there's good stuff there, and usually that's just like there there will be, but it's often just a lot of junk too. You know, it's and and so it's not really a hedonist trove. It's, not, <laughs> it's I mean, uh, I, the, what you just described to me does not sound like. You know, I don't, oh man, I found you know, you know, the lost treasure of whatever. It's, you know. <laughs> so you object to this card on flavor terms? Well, no, but I, I mean, <laughs> you don't. I mean, I think I think you're in the flavor. I mean, what, what the flavor here is representing something, right? And yeah, um, I guess okay. I'm trying to get I have, at, like, I have what? two thoughts. I, I don't disagree with you, but I want to add two thoughts. One, there already is a card called Trash to Treasure, which is the Sorcery Speed that's Welder card. That's different, red. though. That's that's a very different. Trash to Treasure is a very different idea. I I know I'm just I'm playing with you here, but the second one is is the, the reason the flavor is of disagreeing with you here I think is this card was designed to be put on the stack for seven mana in Commander in situations where you really are going to get someone's trove of stuff because it's turn ten or whatever and they've played a bunch of spells Got they're it. awesome. Got it. That had not occurred to me. Yeah, this card gets it's, this is really it's really interesting though what you've touched on here is this card gets actively worse 
the faster you're able to put exactly. it into play. Exactly. Which makes it inherently antithetical to what you want to do in vintage. Well, I, I think that um the one thing the one place that this could possibly appear is if you're playing with those one of those rector decks, like even like a gift deck, and you want a second bargain effect. Because the the danger with Rector is always that you activate the Rector with Cabal Therapy and then your bargain's already in your hand. Or that's a good point. Or as a hoser, a different kind of hoser against certain decks. It's not the best answer against Dredge for Rector. There's plenty of other good answers. Yeah. But it's an interesting surprise way to hurt someone in other archetypes that are trying to delve or Yawgmoth's will. Cabal Therapy also has synergy with this. So if you're playing a deck with Cabal Therapies, that's the worst either. That's a good point. Yep. You get to plan for what's going to be in their discard pile. Another problem with this card in current vintage, and I don't want to say modern necessarily, but at the moment, is this has... It just gets inherently hosed by Delve. Oh yeah. If you if you manage to cast this or you know put it on the stack somehow and you've got it's a triggered ability. So when it enters play, exile all cards and target opponent's graveyard. If they dig through time in response, <laughs> it's just such a there's just such a natural predator to this card in vintage already. In addition to it being difficult to accomplish. Yeah. How how much could this card cost and be fair in vintage? I would say two or three mana. Wow. Holy smoke! You're probably it would be it would be really good at two mana. No, I think I think three would still be probably ridiculously good. Three would probably be I thought, playable. I thought you were gonna say, but five. we'd be having a conversation about whether or not. I thought it was you were gonna say five, honestly. It, it reminds me a little bit of like a Tezzerith. No, no I it's mean, not. That I mean, like good. It, that, like that's like it's five mana. It, be, it becomes like this card's gonna win the game, but it's not like ridiculous. It, it's not though. That's the thing. It's not gonna win you the game at five mana. It think of it like this: if you're playing in a mirror kind of match, a, a deck with similar cards blue based control counterspells cantrips tutors maybe it's just kind of like a concentrate for however big their graveyard is sorcery speed uh, i've drawn a similar amount of cards from my deck i don't agree with that i think it's i think really because you're denying them resources it's like the difference between okay it's like the difference between playing ancestral recall and stealing your opponents stealing your opponents is so much better it's uh, it's that's a really that that example does not hold up okay. very well okay well that's you're talking about spells on the stack well, that's my favorite when you're comparing resources it, it, you're denying them resources you're talking about denying them delve or denying them Snapcasters or Yawgmoth's Will targets. Two out of the three of those can be played in response to this and really diminish its efficacy. <laughs> so it's a decent hoser against Yawgmoth's Will. I guess I'll give you that if they've got a nice juicy graveyard and they're holding their Yawgmoth's Will. So sure, it, it could it could be amazing in certain situations, but the list of things that are good when your opponent is trying the Yawgmoth's Will is really, really long. And very few of those cards already see play also. Yeah, I I just I I don't just don't agree with you that this card would be fair at two two mana or three mana. I don't. Well, it, it's unprintably strong at two mana. <laughs> at three mana, you can't allow it in in standard or any other format. But no, I know. You I could know. Print I'm it in like specifically a, about vintage. I don't think it would be fair yeah. at that cost. I just don't. I think it would be interesting. Fair. I think at three mana, we'd still be having a conversation about how playable it was. I, think about okay, that. Well, I, you can't. I don't. I mean, you, we just finished talking about how you can't rely on a three mana card to well, fight dredge. Well, think about it. Like it just, yeah, if three mana, it could just be a dredge hoser too. Actually, no, that's that's my point. Is we just finished talking about how you can't rely on a three mana card <laughs> well, to fight dredge. Rely on, but it could be part of a package. Okay, <laughs> a, 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 the, the bad part. Of, I mean, think about Yawgmoth's will, right? It's a, it would be a Yawgmoth's will on your opponent's graveyard that that exiles their graveyard, so they can't draw from it. They can't snap cast from it. They can't delve. They can't flashback cards. It, yeah, I got. And then also, 
um, strings it out it, the, with the caveat that you can strings it out over time. No, I think that card would be ridiculously broken. Oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You can't play more than one spell a turn. So you just exiled their five okay. or six card graveyard. Okay. It's filled with juicy stuff, and you can announce one spell we're gonna, next We're going to leave this question to our, 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 li- our listeners. It'll be the question <laughs> of the day. Would this card be broken, like restriction-worthy, in three mana? <laughs> I, I want to hear what our audience thinks about that, because I... I do not agree that that's restriction worthy at all. I think it's borderline playable <laughs> at three mana, and you think it'd be the best thing. Not the best thing, but I think it'd be ridiculously good. I think it'd be. Bro- uh, I don't know. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll we'll talk more about this. I'm going zeros for hedonists troll. Oh, though. I'm in I'm in on zero with you too. Okay, so let's review. As far as predictions of play in Dragons of Tarkir. We've predicted Myth Realized, Steve at seven, Kevin at zero, which is starting to stand out as kind of an outlier. Gonna, seven versus zero. I'm gonna go I'm gonna go back to five. I'm gonna go right to, <laughs> to five on that. <laughs> I, I cast return to sanity on Steve. <laughs> no, that right. card's ridiculous. Definitely have to right. the zero on that card. That's that's gonna be egg on face like treasure cruise. Oh no, it's not. That's not a treasure cruise level. No, it's card. not treasure cruise, but I think zero is definitely discounting this card too much. Okay. The next one is Virulent Plague, two and one, respectively, playable on that one. And that's it. <laughs> I have predicted one top eight appearance from this whole set, and it's not myth realized. <laughs> really need is you know like it's fun to watch how magic has evolved you know like to see and for so so i don't know if you remember kevin but for so many years there was so much fear and anxiety around printing cards for for vintage because of what it would do in other sets but we've we're, we're so beyond that now i mean that seems yes. like such an antiquated perspective and and like just frankly wrong way of thinking about the format i mean and now not only because of the fact that you could have really good cards in vintage that aren't that great in other formats you know cards that are just like ridiculous like lodestone golem or, and not even because of Mitchell's workshop but like i don't know how good mentor is in other formats but it's really darn good in vintage you know and pyromancer i don't know how good pyromancer is in non-eternal formats but because i don't i know nothing about them but the point is but even more importantly than the idea that you can design cards that are great in vintage in in, in safe and other formats we have all these myriad other ways of introducing sets we need more unique ways to introduce new vintage cards so we're not you know like stuck waiting through 99 percent wreck yeah i mean well, awesome what other things are there uh there's sets like conspiracy yeah. i mean you've hit on a very complex issue and i agree with you but at the same time just economies of scale have to come in as well they can't dedicate much energy and r&d to thinking about vintage but they printed the, those sets for not vintage but for non-standard formats right like they did but the majority of the consideration was still not vintage for sure <laughs> right so when you think about conspiracy that was primarily a cube set that was designed for cubing and, and drafting and it had plenty of and a little bit of commander you know it had plenty of considerations for eternal but just not much design for eternal in terms of vintage and just a little bit for legacy well, if you were director of I don't know. Let's not say R and D, but let's say some marketing department or brand manager. Brand manager. What would you recommend in terms of like sets for for older formats? I would or recommend products. they do a. I would recommend they do about as much as they do now, which is dedicate about fifty percent of your 
R&D to limited and another 40% to standard and then save the other 10% for everything else. That, that, that to me still sounds like, I don't, I don't know when I got too deep on this topic, but it, that sounds like maybe like still an antiquated way of thinking about like I've got to divvy up my pie among all these different formats. Why not like start from a very different conceptual perspective? Why not think like, like why not divvy up your personnel in terms of the, the, the roles they're going to play in terms of the types of cards they're going to develop as opposed to <laughs> like the formats they're going to be developing for. I don't mean card types in like terms like creatures instance, right. but like like you have teams that are sort of develop expertise around certain kinds of things. Like you've got people who do very novel cards. They're like a team of people who are pushing the boundaries of design. You've got like a team who is doing like developing cards that are interesting in 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 sort of like formats that feature more combat, like combat tricks and things like that. And then teams who do just like, you know, anyway, you could assign and, and regroup people in very different ways that aren't sort of directed specifically in formats, but more in, 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 in terms of like the kinds of experiences or whatever, the kinds of things that become could be relevant to different formats. So there could be a correlation to formats, but it wouldn't yeah. be sort of narrowly. I think you've made a really interesting, I think you've made a really interesting point about a viable way to organize a, a, a group like R&D that doesn't dovetail well with the corporate ROI motivations that their management has. Well, what I was getting at, what, what I was going to also lead to is, you know, we <laughs> set reviews and magic lives has lived by this kind of circadian rhythms of the quarterly set release. But that's such a doesn't that just strike you as a I don't know, like a, a pre-digital digital way to do magic? I mean, like ah. you know what I mean? Like I, okay, so You've hit on an interesting point that I didn't consider. That is, distribution has a certain impact on this. And Wizards has, for better or for worse, really nailed distribution for years yeah. now. I mean, it's important to note, we uh, Wizards gets lots of criticism in terms of Magic Online. And there's plenty of criticism that's genuinely uh, d- deserved there, I think. But they haven't delayed a paper product ever. Uh, they, the, the very first set alpha came late to Gen Con. Okay. okay. But, I mean, that was, but the game wasn't even really in full production it, at that point. Like... You can't call that production at that point. <laughs> but think about that. And think about that vis-a-vis other uh, companies and other products across any number of product spectra, never delaying your product and keeping the schedule like this for 20 plus years is impressive. What happens if what happens if they make cards for vintage that are only digital objects? <laughs> that would be screwed up. But uh well, that's not yes, it would be screwed up and I don't think they're ever going to take that step, but honestly, it, it's not too far removed from maintaining the reserved list. That's what I was going to say is that vintage events could proxy them, you know, except for the vintage championship. That's that's exactly what I mean yeah. is that if they made up such a card and said we're never going to print these, I would still get to play them. I'd still get to play them in 90% of the vintage events I play. Exactly. In. We we you played Mentor before these in printed. That's right. <laughs> for for sale to the public, I won a tournament with Monastery Mentor. So you've you've touched on some really interesting points. I I just I'm coming at this from a corporate uh, cost benefit kind of structure where they're never going to be able to dedicate the resources to vintage that you and I would like them to. Well, we are our- we're getting far more than our weight in coverage and support as it stands. Oh, you can never vintage I'm, is a sliver of a hair of a percent of the player pool. I'm never going to be thankful for what we have. It ha- you always have to ask for more. I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I mean, seriously, because vintage has gotten the short end of the stick so much. It's got the short end of the stick of the reserve list. It's got the short end of the, yeah. of the stick 
in terms of the digital production being the last format um, to, to, on Magic Online. I, I, I just, um, and therefore the most expensive. I, uh, I'm just thinking about how the game has evolved, how people's sort of view of the evolution and scope of the game has, has evolved, or the perceptions of how we think about and, and live by the game have, have evolved. Mm-hmm. And what's become sort of increasingly apparent from a historical perspective is that there has been a subtle sort of disconnecting of the various formats, an unbuckling, if you will. Yeah. Like that, that's really become more like I, I know nothing about other formats except legacy. Like, uh, like the only thing I know, like the, like I'm being quite literal here. The only things I know about standard are the rules of the game that apply to standard. The fact that there are basic lands and the cards I remember, which are very few from our set reviews, you know, previous sets. Like, yeah. like I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell you more than 20 cards that are besides the cards we were just reviewing right now that are legal in the standard from other sets. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, compared to 10 years ago, or even five years ago, I mean, there's so many more niche products and vehicles for producing cards for different kinds of formats, like the commander sets, you know, which are for commander, right? Uh, yep. Conspiracy, which are for what, what do you say again? Cube? The cube, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like and a little bit, a little bit of other eternal formats. And then you've got modern masters, you've got vintage masters. I, yeah. I just, I wonder if the the way that Wizards has organized its design teams is is sort of in a really overly oriented to pre digital. And I don't mean just that in the sense of like making car physical cards, but I mean in terms of the thinking that informs that that mind that yeah the the organizational okay. structures and infrastructure that supports that as well. I think that's a totally fair point. I feel like now that you've said it that way, that that is actually a separate concept from designing cards for vintage, right? Right. They they overlap. I'll grant you that, but that's not how I interpreted your first comment. You know, you, you know part of what we talked about it and the, the fears that people have expressed in the past about designing cards for vintage is that they would just be like too broken right. for other formats and potentially too broken for vintage itself. But what I'm sort of suggesting is that if you reorganize, reorient the infrastructure for designing cards, you can design, you can break ground that's potentially good in vintage that, that, that has at potential for vintage without having those concerns. And I, I just feel like, like, think about it. How many of our set reviews, I'm, I'm sorry, how many of our shows are set reviews? At least half, I would wager. Well, these days it's almost two thirds. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, that's another way of thinking about it. Is that the best use of our time? You know, it's like, of course, it's an it's an important thing, but you know, that's a good point. Is we're spending a lot of energy talking about stuff that's not happening in the format. <laughs> well, I'd l- I'd like to draw your attention to a few examples, and and you and I haven't really talked about these cards because for the, all the reasons you stated, we don't do commander reviews except for when the new products come out. We talk about two cards, but yeah. there have been printings in the last couple of years that were specific to formats so powerfully that they, the cards are literally unusable in other formats. There are commander cards that refer to yeah. your commander <laughs> and do things based on what it is, and so that effect just doesn't exist in formats without commander. There's a plane chase card that refers to the plane, the, the plane chase die, where you re-roll the die, and there are cards in conspiracy that only function during draft. So they have demonstrated pretty clearly a willingness to make cards that are very laser-focused, narrowly targeted at a a specific format. And to your point, they could be doing that for vintage. Yeah, I I think you're getting, I think you're interpreting what I'm saying is, can they design more for vintage? And that's not what I'm saying. Well, no, I I don't mean to pigeonhole what you are saying. I'm just, I'm just adding this to the discussion. For anyone who's trying to interpret your point, I'm saying there, there are other paradigms of design that are at play here such that you don't need to 
be beholden to the methods that we've done in the past. Yeah, I mean, let me just let yeah. me just try and give a little more context to what I'm trying to say, and I'll take one more stab at this. This set was actually the the last two sets we did. I didn't read the spoilers. I for the first time because I haven't written this set. I used to. I mean, ever since what Time Spiral, at least I have been doing set. No, probably earlier than that. Since Future Sight, I have been doing set reviews. I think I think since Future Sight, maybe Time Spiral. I've been doing set reviews, written set reviews. <laughs> I stopped doing that like two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, and we and. That, Partly because this is such a wonderful way of, of, of accomplishing the same goal, this podcast, that I don't feel like I need to do both. Like, this is in many ways a much better venue for or vehicle for that. Um, but, you know, the, the pro- only problem with the, this is that you can't sort of put cards into a set. I mean, not into a set, into a list, a deck list, like mm-hmm. you can do in an article. But, but looking through this, looking through the spoiler and reading the cards, I was struck by how many of these cards are just limited cards. And, you know, I mean, really, like these, like I was reading this, I was like, this just looks like to me, and maybe that's just, maybe I'm wrong. Well, that's simply true. Yeah, it's simply true. But I, but I, I, my, my point is not that, um, it is not that, oh my God, look how much of this set is just designed for limited. Rather, I'm trying to say that the, this, the demands of, of the various formats place constraints, right? And so what if you get out of that box of like, being concerned in a sort of percentile or percentage way of trying to to meet certain requisites in terms of your design. And you reorganize your teams and your infrastructure and even your calendar, your production calendar, in a very different way that accomplishes those goals, but is much bigger, broader, and more ambitious. It could, it could. There's a. I, I just think there's a lot of potential, and I, I think the outcome, the, the the side effect of that, not the direct goal of that, but the inevitable consequence of such a reorganization would be, I think, more more vintage playable. So it's not that you're animated by a goal of making more vintage playables, but I think that the way R&D is currently structured automatically limits the number of vintage playables that there will be. Well, who knows? You may be referring to something that is that is actually ongoing in a very real sense. The truth is, is that we're getting far more in different products yeah. in terms of their development's approach yeah. than we ever have before. Right. And, and uh, Five or ten years ago, we didn't have sets developed for different formats, literally. And they're so exciting and fun, and they're not predictable. You don't know when they're going to drop. You know, that's yeah. part of the cool thing about it is that it's like, wow, they announced Vintage Masters. Like, you couldn't, we didn't see that coming per se. I mean, they did give us a hint that they were going to try and make some vintage cards for Magic Online. But, I mean, yeah. like, I like the idea of not having, like, a regular production schedule. Like, okay, it's this year's Commander or this year's Conspiracy. But mix it yeah. up, like, introducing new products, new trying new things, experimentalism. And That's a very interesting point. I I think that R&D has shown that they are willing to push the envelope and hopefully they are continuing to think of more and creative ways to do exactly what you're talking about. It will be very interesting to see. I mean, literally speaking, when you talk about card distribution, right? We've seen booster packs. We saw starter decks come and go. We've seen booster packs all along. We've seen expansions, obviously, from day two of of the game. We've seen pre-constructed decks we've seen booster products that were not designed to be in part of standard now but 
all of those things don't introduce very much variance to your point in the distribution. They're all just things you buy. They're either randomized product or they're set list products, big and big chunks for the latter, like dual decks, you get 120 cards or whatever it is in total. But we haven't seen the micro release. We haven't seen the, here's one new card and here's how you get it. Exactly. We haven't seen 10 cards. Hey, here's 10 new cards for standard. Rather than ban a card in Legacy, we just printed these five cards. <laughs> I'm right. Yeah, I mean, this we haven't seen that kind of thing. But the design experimental, I mean, the design space is, is often held back so much by by but the demands of the other formats as well as the you know, the needs of the corporation, which are understandable. But you, mm-hmm. but you've also, I mean, you, the kind of design experimentalism, you know, the distrib- distribution in in essence limits or also constrains design options. Like you just sure. point out something that is just like you couldn't have conceived of that in 1993, right? We've because what would have been the vehicle right. for that? <laughs> right. But we live in a different age. And just to be clear, though, the experimentalism I'm sort of interested in in terms of design is not something I'm interested in in terms of ban and restricted list management. In the uh, uh, Team Serious podcast, they talked about how they enjoy sort of like randomly unrestricting cards to see its effect. I'm not. I'm not in favor of that. That's. It's like. <laughs> Like I take ban and restrict list policy as seriously as I take the you know the Federal Reserve's open market committee <laughs> policy. I'm serious. Like the, the the FMOC you know policy. I'm like their policies in terms of setting interest rates is I take that as virtually as seriously as are you know uh, the, the DCI's ban and restrict list policies. So I, I'm not in favor of exper- of experimentalizing experimentalization you know mm-hmm. for the sake of like messing with things and seeing how things flow. But and design is a very different question. I think, you know, maybe I'm starting with the assumption that there's a lot of design space that's cons- that is not unexplored, but it's perhaps underexplored because of the constraints that we just talked about. Well, it'll be interesting to see one of the things that has been constant, I think, for R&D, while all, all these project and release schedules and timings have been adjusted over the past decade, one thing that I don't think has changed much is the amount of time they set aside for each new set. I think their schedule in terms of they work in the whole 15 to 24 months ahead of time kind of time frame that they've alluded to and and people have talked about in various articles. Yeah, exactly. That is something that might be the bigger hindrance in all of this but that's just a, than the role assignment that you mentioned. I'm definitely repeating myself at this point, but that's just a function of how you organize the design in, in the design and play testing. And that's just, that is goes back to the 90s. I mean, uh, has there you, you, the teams that you the model that is exists right now, which is you have a design team and then they hand it off to the play test team, and, uh-huh. and then this involves the future future league. That's a model that was created in the mid 1990s. You know, uh, anchored well, around it, the you know, that model. That model is inexorably linked to the model for standard, though, right? It's defined by yeah. the schedule for standard. Yeah. What you're talking about would require either building something in addition to that model, like a separate group, or or almost abandoning that model. Because you can't keep rotating standard if you're not developing cards in chunks or in a similar cycle. They, they go hand in hand, right? Limited is as limited is as limited does. You could add cards to standard without making a limited, like you know, a set designed for draft or, or sealed deck. That's certainly feasible. So you could decouple limited from standard, but the definition of standard is is defined by the pace at which we develop sets. And right. The what size what I was sets. sort of suggesting is that if you had a, a, a reorganization and a different kind of infrastructure, it mm-hmm. still accomplished the goals of, of the of standard, but things wouldn't be it wouldn't be sort of so tightly na- tailored to mm-hmm. to the demands of standard or the you know this 
this, as they call the circadian rhythms of the current set structures, yeah. distribution, release, etc. It would be something that accommodates itself to the needs of those articulated needs, but it would be could be much more expansive and potentially much more innovative. Yeah. Let's well, yeah. I I think that'd be interesting. You and I will be around to watch the fireworks as R and D evolves their approach to things for years to come. We certainly hope so. <laughs> but as it pertains to vintage, I want to reiterate that we want to hear what you think about the potential three mana hedonist show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this may be an indication of why Steve and I are not members of R&D. <laughs> no. Thanks for listening to episode 42 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time. We wish you many insane plays. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is... Forty-two.